Well, hello, constant listener, and welcome back to another episode of Failure Peace Theater, your podcast for discussions of cinematic near misses, those slight failures that just never found purchase in the world of popular cinema. And this week, we are very pleased to bring you a film that has certainly grown in stature since its release, but one that uh, definitely did not find an audience at its time. And that was, or is, I should say, The Rocketeer, uh, the 1991 Disney-produced comic book adaptation of Dave Stevens' iconic character. Um, So our discussion this week is going to focus on the 1991 film and uh, all of the things uh, surrounding it. I am a huge Rocketeer fan, so I'm just going to go ahead and play my hand and lay my cards out on the table. I love this movie. I think it's just great. Um, and uh, I certainly want more and more and more people to enjoy it. So our discussion this week will uh, definitely verge into that territory for me. But of course, joining me, as always, is... Catherine. And uh, I know we share some similar opinions on this, but undoubtedly we will have uh, some opportunity to uh, sort of push back and forth and see what we think about this iconic Joe Johnston-directed classic. Um, But before we get into that, what you been watching? Uh, I finally started watching The Mandalorian. Yay! I am in episode... I guess I'm starting the, um, the third or the fourth episode, I can't remember. Uh, <clears throat> they are in together. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it's he's uh, he's a Boba Fett, and he runs around and he punches stuff. <laughs> he does, and he has all kinds of cool Mandalorian stuff. Yeah, and he's uh, getting Beskar from famous documentary filmmakers, and and uh, getting jobs and running around with a big cool gun that was in the Star Wars Holiday Special. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a great show. Uh, of course, the as of, of this recording, the second season has just concluded, so you've got a, a, a nice chunk of content to get through. Um, but uh, very satisfying. Uh, pretty easy to say that uh, Mandalorian has at least for people at large. I was always going to be on board for Star Wars. I even terrible Star Wars. I'll watch because <laughs> it's Star Wars. It's fine. I watched The Phantom Menace not too long ago, and I didn't want to kill myself. So, yeah, progress. <laughs> I haven't but, watched The Phantom Menace in a long time. <laughs> the fan, there is like 40 minutes of a great movie in The Phantom Menace. The problem is it's two and a half hours it's long. It's so burned into my brain I, at this point. I don't think there's a minute of that movie that I can... I cannot just have seared on the back of my eyelids. I saw it six oh, no. times in the theater for whatever mm-hmm. reason. I think just because it was new Star Wars. It's new and Star I was Wars. 12. Yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> the, the phenomenon was undeniable. Like, there was no stopping it. It didn't matter if the movie was good or not. It was, it was just huge. It was, you know, it was 17 years since any Star Wars. I mean, unless you're counting, you know, Caravan of Courage. Ewoks battle for indoor. Hey, hey. Right? I count those. <laughs> the Wilford Brimley Star Wars. Um, 
you know, I got a couple of books in there that were pretty good. Got, Near and uh, dear to my heart. <laughs> oh, believe me, I, I watched all of those. Caravan of Courage, I remember watching a lot more than, than Battle for Endor. I guess we had that one recorded off of NBC or something, but... Uh, yeah, I own no, them on I, DVD now, so. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's really good. I'm surprised they're not on Disney Plus, or am I? Um, Wait, they're not yeah, on Disney no, Plus. What? The, I've got to cancel. <laughs> no, they are not in the Star Wars collection on Disney Plus. Son of a. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it's it's. Mandalorian has has you know sort of regained some ground that had been lost with star wars and the sequel trilogy at least in in popular consciousness um but it is an incredibly well produced and incredibly solid show like it's just it's very well done uh it's not perfect it is it is not absolutely you know amazing at all corners but it is it's scrappy right like it's and star wars needs to be a little bit scrappy um, the moment that anybody in a Star Wars can say, "Let's just throw some money at it," is when things start falling apart. Because Star Wars needs to feel grounded in something; it needs restriction. And even though Mandalorian looks really good and it's incredibly well produced, apparently the budget for it is actually quite restrictive. Like they don't just have infinite cash to do whatever they want. And I think it's actually a benefit because it's forcing them to be creative in how they shoot it and where they shoot it there's a once you finish the first season there's a really really good behind the scenes documentary series called gallery i think just mm-hmm. Disney gallery and and it just goes over all of these these you know production components that you know kind of had to come together to make the show even happen uh within the budget that they had and uh and not to forget you know dave filoni's in there you know and, and more than anyone else Dave Filoni, uh, who was the you know, director and exec producer on Clone Wars and Rebels mm-hmm. and all of the animated output, which, you know, again, is, is also really good. Clone Wars is a great animated TV show. Rebels isn't half bad either. Um, Filoni has spent more time working shoulder to shoulder with George Lucas than probably anybody else in the industry. Uh, and, and if anybody's going to sort of steer Star Wars in a direction that is that jives with George's original vision for what that is, I think. Do you think, think anyone one of those guys. anyone would own up to that credit, spent more time rubbing shoulders with George Lucas than anyone in the industry? Like, <laughs> Maybe, like I want I that mean, as the know, tag on my bio. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's easy to forget how important a filmmaker George Lucas is. You know, he's, he's, I mean, Spielberg gets all the awards, but Lucas was right there with him you know, trading ideas back and forth and checking out each other's movies and offering notes. I mean, I, I think of, you know, the Milius, Spielberg, Lucas, Coppola, Coppola connection. Lucas is probably on the weaker end of that spectrum in terms of just being a director. Um, you know, I, I think, but, but his cultural impact is indelible. Right. I mean, he just, yeah, he just has a different kind of success. You can't escape him now. And, you know, one of the things that I actually plan to talk about with the Rocketeer, because Dave Stevens worked for Lucasfilm um, mm-hmm. in the 70s and, and worked, the, you know, in, in more background, you know, production design capacities on things like Star Wars. And um, 
you know, Dave Stevens, much like George Lucas, kind of wears his influences on his sleeve. Um, you know, the Rocketeer is is a very specific kind of character designed to fit in a very specific universe of ideas and characters. And George Lucas, you know, was pretty much doing the same thing, you know, kind of remixing a bunch of stuff that he thought was cool from his childhood into Star Wars. And Stevens did the same thing with the Rocketeer. Um, you know, so it's they're very much of a, a piece in my mind. They kind of are working on the same wavelength. But that's cool. I, I'm glad you're getting into it. I, I I think you'll be satisfied if you if you hang in. The only other uh, I think it's good. The only other thing that I've been watching is a complete and total shift from a Star War. Um, as my husband had never seen Old Boy, uh, mm. and he had never seen Audition, and those Come couldn't on. be more different from the no. Star Wars. But yes, that, but we sorry. also watched those. So nice. Yeah. Uh, and he liked both, so that's good. That's good. I was glad I could share yeah. that. I haven't watched those since I was in college, I think. I watched Old Boy not too long ago um, because I watched the Spike Lee Old Boy yeah. and then immediately <laughs> wanted to watch a good version of that story. Um, because as much as I liked Josh Brolin's attempt to play that character, hmm. Man, that just did not really go anywhere. I have a lot um, of issues with taking a story that's perfectly fine being set in Korea and having Korean people in it and then making it not that. It, it's like, a bold choice. I don't know why we had to remake that movie and make it not Korean. Like, goodness. Well, it's, it's the Hollywood problem of remaking good movies instead of bad ones. Right, like yeah. movies that don't need remakes. Like old old boy plays, regardless. Yeah, know? like I understand wanting yeah. to make something that's that's easier to digest for an English speaking audience because subtitles are, are tough and and mm -hmm. and dubs are terrible. But at the same time, like you you're stripping a little bit of the film's core identity from it. <laughs> Just don't get yeah. it. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 a trade-off. And sometimes it works, you know, sometimes I mean you know the the Seven Samurai, Magnificent Seven's a good movie too, you know. Um, you know, Jimbo made for pretty good man with no name movie, you know, like sometimes it works, but other times it's just it's a Yeah, I think when you have a, a complex story is when it gets lost in translation, quite literally. Sometimes. So you're saying that old boy has a complex story? Uh, hmm. slightly. Interesting. Slightly. Hmm. I thought it was just about a man in a box. I thought That's it was just about a man who kills men with a hammer. <coughs> yeah, in that one scene. Yeah, I remember that yeah, part. Totally. Uh, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Like old and old boy is rooted. A lot of the the things that happen in old boy are very much rooted in in that culture. And if you take it out of that, it just kind of doesn't have the same impact. Um, but in any case, well, that's cool. That's, that's definitely good. It's been a long time since I've seen audition. Um, I've never been the biggest Takashi Miike fan. I'll be honest. I, I, uh, I don't know what my problem is. I've seen all of his movies. I, and I don't, I'm not, I'm not endorsing them. I'm not recommending them. I'm just saying I've seen them. <laughs> yes. No, I mean, they're worth watching his, his, Ichi the killer his is a great movie. Ichi is, is very good. It's, um, that's probably his most palatable 
film. Um, but I, I remember one of the last ones I watched was a, it was a detective story that he did. And it was just, it was laughable. Like I couldn't, <laughs> I, I couldn't even, I, I know I finished it, but I was completely uninvested in the film. I was like, I, I don't even care what's happening here. It was, and I was shocked. Um, it, it, it was only, it felt almost inept in its construction. Seems and, like and recent, I, his know. more recent stuff is just not as, not as interesting to me. Um, sure. Audition though is, it, it is one of my, my top, not slasher horror. I'm not even really sure what kind of horror to call it. It's just, it's just horrific. <laughs> um, yeah. But I, I like the, the, you know, kind of not feminist reading. Well, I guess a feminist reading um, of the film. You know, they use those depersonalization techniques when they they film the women specifically. It's just it's so good. It's such a good movie if you're up for it. But not a lot of people are. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's it's just something that you have to you have to kind of know what you're getting into. But if, if you do, I, I think there's a lot to enjoy it'll certainly leave an impression like <laughs> it'll absolutely leave an impression um i think it was detective story yeah that was the one it was detective story um and i just just i was not into it at all it's, but anyway uh, don't let let my opinion you know keep you from checking out takashi Miki's stuff he's he's certainly certainly good uh well um as i try to establish myself as some sort of like credible film reviewer. Uh, the only thing that I've really been watching here of late, apart from the more recent episodes of the Mandalorian, um, we signed up for HBO max in preparation for wonder woman 84 coming out on uh, Christmas day. And so HBO max has all of the DC original stuff, uh, which I've never been able to, to check out or I've never taken the time to check out. So uh, I checked out uh, Doom Patrol, which is the uh, adaptation that has Brendan Fraser as Robot Man, uh, which is, uh, I, I, I'll watch anything with Brendan Fraser in it mm -hmm. at this point. I think mm -hmm. he's, he's great. He doesn't do the performance. He just does the voiceover for the vast majority. He does appear as himself in flashbacks of the character before he was Robot Man, pre-Robot Man. Um, but I checked that out. Timothy Dalton is in it. Weird connection to uh, what we're talking about tonight. He I plays love Timothy the, Dalton. Yeah, and he's he's really good. He plays Chief, um, the sort of head of the Doom Patrol, who assembled them as a group um, in, a, in a small part, but a good one. And then uh, Alan Tudyk as uh, Mr. Nobody, uh, which he is awesome, as usual. He's actually the narrator of the show as well. So I checked that out. That was pretty cool. And then, um, as a, a family, we've been watching uh, Star Girl, which is a—I guess it's a CW show—but then HBO Max has the streaming rights. And you know, the the CW DC shows are all of a piece, right? Like they're all kind of in the same quality bar range. You know, they they have roughly the same budget, roughly the same sort of cast of characters. Um, the flash has been my, my favorite one, uh, prior to this. I, I really like the, the basic construction of the flash. I cannot stand 22 episode seasons anymore. Like I'm just like, it's, it's no, no, that is too much. 
and you can feel them you know once once they hit you know that post midseason they're just stretching man there's a whole episodes devoted to just nonsense and um this one is much more condensed it's like the standard 13 you know premium format uh huge step up in special effects quality which i was really surprised by you know the the staff because uh, you know, it's starman's staff and they they established that at the beginning and then it winds up in the hands of this this young girl who becomes star girl and the the special effects that they use for the staff and how it's it's sort of played out in the show and in combat is really cool um surprisingly cool and then of course her sidekick is a a giant robot called stripes or stripe um, and that is surprisingly well done on the show as well. So uh, some cool stuff, you know, a little bit of teen drama, not as much as I thought there would be. Um, and and then just uh, the it focuses really on the Justice Society of America, and she sort of has to form a new version of that group. And really impressive. Like, we've, we've really enjoyed it. Um, Luke Wilson is in it, uh, and he's awesome, which I was not expecting that when I turned it on. I was like, but Luke Wilson's in this. Uh, Amy Smart is in it as well. Uh, just a, a lot of, you know, really good, strong character actors, you know, sort of anchoring key components and parts. But a lot of the fun is just looking at, I mean, they're digging deep into the golden age of DC superheroes. I mean, this has Our Man in it. <laughs> And, um, you know, Solomon Grundy, which he showed up in a bunch of stuff, but this mm -hmm. is probably the best version of Solomon Grundy. I don't know. Uh, he was in the Rocksteady game. <laughs> I killed him. That's true. Uh, I love when all of those lousy heroes and villains showed up in the Rocksteady games. That was awesome. Yeah. I so know, I kind of like that. You, you kind of love those deep cuts, right? And DC, you know, as much as Marvel is excelling at making everything feel real and, you know, quote unquote grounded and and so you know very palatable dc i, I kind of love how the tv shows just lean into the weirdness like just as hard as they possibly can they're like oh no no our man's got a yellow cape and he's gonna have a freaking yellow cape he's got red little arrows on his arms like they look like they just looked at all of the alex ross paintings of those characters and they just designed their costumes around that and it's pretty perfect. Uh, the Stargirl costume is comic exact, like to the fact that she's wearing basically like a gymnast's outfit with like the little shorts and everything. <laughs> it's <Huh>. it's <laughs> crazy, but she looks great. It's a fantastic costume. It's it's designed super well. Uh, it it's it's really impressive. I was I was very pleased with how everything broke down. Just really good, but. Um, and I will just say this, and this might sell you on it. So the, the opening of the show is the fall of the original Justice Society of America after being attacked by the Injustice Society of America. <laughs> 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 I know. I See, this is DC's golden age. This is when you get the good stuff. And the original Starman is played by Joel McHale. <laughs> <laughs> and and he's quite good in the the little bit of screen time that he gets it's quite nice but in any case uh so we've really just been watching that and and i was 
surprised at how much I was enjoying myself. But I, I've really been binging all just all of the DC original stuff that's on HBO Max and trying to get in the right mindset for Wonder Woman 84. Um, excited to, to see what Patty Jenkins does on her second outing with that character. So nice. we shall see. But I suppose we need to segue into a superhero film from the time when superhero films were absolutely not cool, apart from Batman. Uh, and that, of course, is The Rocketeer. So let's kick it off by talking about the failure. Uh, this is a, a circumstance where the Rocketeer was not a, was not critically panned at the time. It was not universally praised, that's for sure. And I've got some examples back and forth here in a bit. But its failure was at the box office, um, as as many of these types of films in the 1990s were. Uh, the 90s was a real weird sort of flux time where you had big bombastic action releases that were super popular. And then you had these very, you know, basically kind of realistic dramas that got a lot of attention. I mean, movies like Philadelphia and, you know, these Forrest Gump, you know, like these, these social movies that, that had, you know, size and scale to them, but ultimately were, were sort of rooted in reality. And so the Rocketeer hits right in the middle of that kind of popular streak. Um, it also came a year before like Terminator 2 Judgment Day. So don't don't think that everybody got all hoity-toity in the 90s or anything. They definitely didn't. But it, it hit at a weird time for movies like this um, because it was looking way back for its inspiration, right? So the 30s and 40s, which was not necessarily a popular subject matter at this time. Indiana Jones had come to an end in 89. Everybody kind of had their fill of that series. And uh, when this was originally sold, that's what they basically pitched to Disney was, you know, hey, look, Indiana Jones is really popular. Don't you want a little piece of that? And Disney, of course, was like, well, sure, we do want that. But um, so it's got a, a 66% on Rotten Tomatoes in terms of critics consensus. Uh, again, a lot of that are, you know, the newer reviews and, and, and I, there has been a substantial shift on this film. The vast majority of people, I think it's mostly because of like mooks like me who watched this when they were kids and thought it was great and nobody cared. And now we're older and we can just kind of bleed about it on the Internet until people yeah. pay attention to us. You know, it's, it's just the natural order of things. Right. I'm a 40 year old male. It's my turn I get now. to <laughs> I get to go on the Internet and tell people what I think. Gosh, darn it. Um but I, I think that's part of what we we are seeing. But there was a, a decent critical response to this film um, in some quarters. But the vast majority of people were pretty lukewarm on it at best. The basic synopsis is a young test pilot or a, a, a stunt racing pilot, pilot uh, a stunt Bummer, pilot named, named Cliff Secord. Uh, discovers by a series of circumstances a strange device that he comes to know as a jetpack. He straps it to his back, figures out how to fly it, and becomes the Rocketeer. Um, all the while being chased by the mob, by a mysterious hidden villain who's attempting to obtain the jetpack for himself, uh, and ultimately Nazis. Nazis, because you can't have a movie set in the 1930s or 40s without... Nazis, but this may be one of the best use of movie Nazis kind of ever, to be honest. Um, 
but uh, it's a fantastic film. It really is. Um, the question is, is does it hold up? Right? Is it is it something that is worth our time today? Uh, I can't say that it is streaming on Disney Plus uh, right now. And uh, if you have access to it, I would encourage you to pause the podcast, go check it out, and uh, come back and listen to our discussion. It is also pretty widely available on Blu-ray. Uh, they had a Blu-ray release a few years back, and that's still pretty easy to come by uh, if you don't have access to Disney Plus as a streaming service. But it is certainly right there waiting for you if you were interested. So let's kind of get into our, our critic discussion here. Uh, I pulled a bunch of different ones, some negative, some positive, uh, just to kind of give the, the overall mix of, of how people felt about Rocketeer. And I tried to restrict it to ones that would have been reviewing it at the time rather than some of the newer reviews. So the first one I pulled was uh, Janet Maslin from the New York Times. And uh, her negative review said, Plenty of energy has gone into making this a bustling, visually clever film with an amusing late 1930s stylishness. But the purpose of such effort is uncertain. Mm-hmm. Um, which, again, is a fairly common complaint that there's, there's a lot of style and a lot of bombast here. But it doesn't really ever kind of get its engine going. Right, and that was a fairly common refrain that it's glossy, it's beautiful, but it it doesn't really have much pushing it or driving it forward. Um, don't know if I agree, but that was a something I saw pretty frequently. Uh, next positive review from Peter Travers, Rolling Stone, longtime critic: the film is awash in all kinds of surprises that are too juicy to reveal. Uh, and if you read his full review, he was extremely up on the film. It wasn't perfect. Um, but he loved the style. He loved the setting. He loved the Hollywood references. He loved the, um, you know, the the time references. You know, Howard Hughes shows up in this movie, played masterfully by Terry O'Quinn. Um, another I'm always you know, happy awesome. When I see him. Oh, Terry O'Quinn will make a movie for me. If I didn't know he was in it and he pops up, I'm like, yes, Terry O'Quinn is in it. This is a, this is a plus. Uh, I watched Lost for Terry O'Quinn. Yeah, like, this is the only reason I kept up with that show. Um, is just because I, I enjoy. Don't tell me what I can't do work. became my mantra because of him <laughs> on Lost. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Uh, although I think my favorite character is uh, Peter from Millennium. Yeah, uh, Peter oh. from the Millennium Group, uh, which I've been slowly show. rewatching that show. It is. It's hard to watch that show in, in bunches of chunks because it's dark. For the late nineties. It is dark. I mean, dark. Like the third episode. He is hunting down a guy who is killing prostitutes in peep show rooms, and then he drops their bodies off where gay guys go cruising. Significantly. And then he kills the gay guys who come to look, and it's just like, what is happening? Why are all these people just, being murdered? There's all these people being murdered for expressing their sexual feelings. What's going on? It's so crazy. It but was just it, a I lot mean, darker in tone than, than the X-Files. I mean, it just goes to show that once after the X-Files hit, Chris Carter had carte blanche. Nobody was telling him no at Fox. It's just whatever you want to do, Chris Carter. Do you want to just have a surfboard in your office that you can ride at any time? Do it. Right. It was do just Do you want to punch craziness. me in the face? Do it, Chris Carter. Chris but Millennium Carter is great. Punch you in the face. <laughs> I wish Millennium was, was streaming somewhere because it's a show that I think people would really, I, I think people would really get into it now. It's such a cool mythology. There's so much weird stuff going on in the background. Lance Henriksen is the lead, and he's incredible, of course. 
Uh, it's just it's it's a great show. But uh, Terry O'Quinn's character in that was, was fantastic, like really really good. So anyway, uh, so Roger Ebert in the Chicago Sun Times also a positive review. Uh, you have to dial down to return to an age of innocence when an eccentric inventor and a clear-eyed hero could take on the bad guys with a new gizmo they dreamed up overnight. Uh, so Ebert immediately picked up on the fact that this film is sort of built upon not just the nostalgia of a time period, but the types of media and storytelling that were popular during that time period. Yeah. Right? Like, this is not just a movie that's made and set in the 1940s. It is meant to be emblematic, evocative. And, it is tonally appropriate. And tonally appropriate. This is, a, this is a movie that they want you to feel could have been released in the 1940s for audiences in the 1940s, which is why it probably didn't find purchase. Because uh, a lot of people are going to see that, you know, anachronistic quality and perhaps bounce off because they, they don't get it, right? Um, which is, is unfortunate because you can certainly find a lot to like here. Uh, so a negative review from Hal Hinson. It's a humble little item, easily digested and easily forgotten. Um, which I would say that most of Joe Johnston's movies could probably be summed up that way. They are light. They tend to be a bit on the fluffy side. They tend to be really, really evocative and sort of positive. I mean, this is the dude that directed Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, right? Which is he a directed, masterpiece. It's, it's really good, Jumanji man. is a masterpiece. Jumanji. Um, Captain America, the first Avenger. I, I mean, you know, dudes, I'd say perhaps his only misstep is Jurassic Park three, but I don't think that's his fault. Mm-hmm. And, and even still, I don't hate Jurassic Park three. It's certainly better than Lost World. It doesn't take much. But... He also made <sighs> October Sky, which is a he great did. movie. Oh, it's a glorious film. Um, yeah, I, I think Joe Johnston I, is I is troublingly one of those directors that you love all of his movies, but you don't ever think of Joe Johnston ever. No, like he just doesn't he, he doesn't have that same esteem as some other directors from his era, uh, or at least people who came out of Hollywood in his era. But he has really directed just some bangers. I mean, just straight up bangers, and and Rocketeer falls into that category too, uh, at least for me. So not quite easily forgotten on my part. Uh, Joe Brown from the Washington Post, based on a comic book, deliciously corny but not campy, The Rocketeer is the movie Dick Tracy and Batman wanted to be. I agree with that. Uh, which I think is a huge compliment and absolutely true, especially on the Dick Tracy part. I was pro Dick Tracy. I had so much Dick Tracy stuff. I had the little records that you could play that had the 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 story on it. You read the book and they read to the you cassette and I had audio those tapes. from Pizza Hut. I have a yellow I, trench I mean, coat because of Dick Tracy. Absolutely, man. I was on board for that. But Dick Tracy tried desperately to do and tried it and, and was was trying so hard at it. And the Rocketeer makes what they were going for seem effortless. Yeah. And and it just works way, way better, in my opinion. So I, I think this is pretty spot on. And then finally from Empire Magazine, it reaches for the skies but runs out of fuel. Mm-hmm. Um, so the common complaints is that it was it, it's pretty generic and it's kind of forgettable, right? It's not necessarily going to stick in your brain. 
don't know if I agree, but that was a common complaint, right? It's just nothing to really sort of linger. Um, another one was that it was too mechanical and formulaic, right? That the film actually just follows the formula for, you know, this kind of movie and, and hits all of the beats, which I would agree with. But I think that that is a strength of the movie is that it is extremely sound from a structural standpoint. It has all of the pieces necessary to make it effective and they stick to them. And a lot of people just seem to think that the story never really rose to its promise, right? It set up a, a promising uh, story and, and didn't really execute on it as well as it could have, which may or may not have been entirely their fault. Uh, so as we've been doing periodically, I also grabbed a couple of Google reviews, just two, but I, I wanted to share them. Uh, the first is from OP Ninja, and he said, this movie is really great. The idea of the Rocketeer is really good, and it keeps you on the end of your seat. Uh, which I thought was was just a lovely sentiment. Yeah. On the end of your just seat. At the the very, just at the very end. Just at the very end. You're not uncomfortable, but you are <laughs> slightly shoved forward, right? He he wanted to express that, you know, I'm, I'm not moving off of my couch. I'm just slightly moving to the end. Uh, or maybe to the left. Maybe he's moving to the end of his couch <laughs> rather than the edge of the couch. My wife sits at the other end. <laughs> that's right. And I just don't want to be that close to her. Uh, and then the other one was from David Marshall, who gave the film five stars. And he said, David, like Safeway food fried chicken. I agree. 100%. So, I mean, David's David's feelings about Safeway Foods fried chicken quality, he still thought The Rocketeer was a five-star film. Mm -hmm. um, so it stands right along Safeway chicken as, as quality, right? Which I think is important for us all to remember as we begin our discussion and deep dive. So, I think that should be a new scale for how good a movie is. Is, <laughs> is it, it Safeway, Safeway chicken foods? good? Is it Safeway chicken good? That's hard to say. Know. It's difficult to articulate. The, the mind knows not what the tongue wants, right? <laughs> um, so I wanted to talk just a little bit about the, the genesis of The Rocketeer before we get into it. Because uh, one of the reasons why this film may not have found purchase is that many people were unfamiliar with the Rocketeer as a character prior to this movie. And, and I would have been included. I was 11 when this movie came out. And, and I certainly didn't know who the Rocketeer was outside of, of you know, the run-up to the release of the film. Um, I found out very quickly, and then I went to our, our local comic book store and poured through to see if I could find anything. I eventually found one issue of a Rocketeer comic. Um, but the Rocketeer as a character appeared first in a as a side story in a Mike Grell uh, sort of Conan ripoff comic book from the 70s for Pacific Comics. And so Rocketeer was created by a man named Dave Stevens. And Dave Stevens was one of those guys that if you were into comic books, or more importantly, if you were in the comic book industry yourself, if you were an artist, you knew who Dave Stevens was. Uh, Dave Stevens is, is probably one of the finest comic book pencilers and inkers that has ever lived and, and may ever live ever. Um, Stevens is, is one of the most exacting artists in history. Um, I actually own one of my, my 
pr- my proudest possessions. Um, after Stephen's death in, I, th- I want to say 2000, 2009, maybe 2007, um, IDW purchased the rights to, to Rocketeer and all of his, his work. And they released as, as a Comic-Con exclusive an artist's edition of the complete Rocketeer. Um, it is printed in its original size. So they are the actual size pages. I want to say even slightly larger than that. Um, and it is entirely in black and white. There is no color applied to the pages. It's Stephen's original pencils and inks. Uh, flaws and all, like where he made corrections and changes, it's everything scanned at the highest resolution and, and reproduced. Um, it's, it's beautiful. It, you, you could teach an entire class on illustration with the you know 170-ish pages of that book. And, and Stephen's amongst his peers was regarded as, as an incredible artist. Um, Stevens, as we mentioned before, he wore his influences on his sleeve. The Rocketeer uh, was, a, was designed from the ground up to fit into the classic characters of the 1930s and 40s pulp comics uh, and radio shows. Uh, the original issues of the Rocketeer have him buddying up with a guy who is not named, but is absolutely Doc Savage. Uh, in a later edition, when Rocketeer goes to New York, he hooks up with Le- a guy who is never named, but is definitely Lamont Cranston, the Shadow. Um, he, the Rocketeer, and the Rocketeer himself is is based in no small part on Commander Cody from the um, Republic serials, the same Republic serials that inspired George Lucas with the crawling text. And um, of course, one of the primary clone soldiers in the prequels is named Cody uh, based on Commander. Uh, well, I guess it was Commando Cody, but um, but he had a rocket pack and he would fly across the screen and it was really obvious that it was like a dummy on wires. And But it was, it was cool. It was the 1930s and 40s, right? Like nobody... It was, it was awesome looking. And so it had a, a huge inspiration, uh, inspirational component to the people that saw them. And so Stevens was also influenced by all of those things. And he wanted to create a character that lived in that world. And that's where the Rocketeer came from. Uh, he was also incredibly influenced by the pinup girl tradition of the 1950s. Uh, most notably, Betty Page. Mm-hmm. Uh, among others, like Page was not his only muse, but he was certainly the one that he based Cliff Secord's girlfriend, who in the comic was named Betty, uh, Betty Blake. In the film, her name is changed to Ginny because they didn't want to pay Betty Page anything <laughs> for using her license and obviously making up Jennifer Connelly to look like Betty Page from that era. Um, and it's Disney also doesn't really want... Because wasn't she originally mm-hmm. like a... Nudie model in, in the comic book? She was... Yes. Yeah. No. Cliff she was Secord's an actual girlfriend. Model. Yes. Cliff Secord's girlfriend in the original comics was a pinup model who did uh, nude photo shoots, um, which is, is one of the main sort of issues with this version of The Rocketeer. When... So this, this film, like many of the movies of this era, we talked about it with Something Wicked This Way Comes last week, uh, had a, a complicated licensing history. Uh, Stevens had only released, I want to say, three, maybe four issues of The Rocketeer. Stevens, because he was so good, was notoriously slow. Um, It took him sometimes 
eight months to a year to produce a single issue of the comic book. Um, so he was never going to find like mainstream comic book success, but people, you know, his art was so compelling and the story was so interesting that he sold the film rights almost immediately. And they were originally purchased by Steve Miner, uh, primarily involved with the Friday the 13th franchise. And uh, he held on to them for quite some time. Uh, his deal expired, so they reverted back to Stevens. Stevens farmed it out again. And, and that's when uh, the writers of this film, Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeo, stepped in and, and began adapting it for the film. Uh, and when it was originally pitched and sold to Disney, it was supposed to be made under the Touchstone Pictures banner. So we talked about this a little bit, uh, you know, well, several times, but definitely last week with Something Wicked This Way Comes. Disney has had a variety of film production arms for years, generally verging between adult content, you know, sort of middle of the road content and kids content. And so this film was originally purchased under the Touchstone banner to be a more adult film, right? Not necessarily an R rating, but... Again, DeMeo and, and Bilson basically pitched this as like a, we're going to do like an Indiana Jones style, you know, fun, punch em up, classic movie serial kind of movie. But uh, when Michael Eisner came in and became chairman of, of the Walt Disney group of companies, he brought with him Jeffrey Katzenberg, who became the, the head of Walt Disney Pictures. And Katzenberg... Uh, fought back and forth with DeMeo and Bilson, at least according to them, for almost three years. Uh, they did multiple drafts of the script, changing things, deleting scenes, altering characters, moving characters around, putting stuff in, taking stuff out. Um, they said it was basically a frustrating process, and they, they were basically fired and rehired onto the movie multiple times. Um, other people were brought in to do the script. They couldn't do it as well, so they were brought back in. And it, was, it just sounds like it was kind of a nightmare. And then ultimately it was decided basically the last minute before production started that it was not going to be released under Touchstone and would instead be released as a Walt Disney film. And releasing it as a Walt Disney film meant it had to be family friendly. Yeah. Right. You, you couldn't have pinup girls, you know, so Jenny become Jenny changes from being a pinup girl to being a wannabe actress, which is of course a much more palatable profession. Um, still has the same look, still has some of the same qualities, but she's not, you know, going out and doing this thing that would be seen as sort of culturally taboo. But so uh, all of these things get sort of shifted around. They they make those concessions because it's the only way the movie's going to get made. But it certainly does compromise a bit of the the more adult elements of the story, some of which still remain. Right? There's some some very difficult violence in this movie. It do gets freaking bent in half um you know people get shot people get stabbed you know there is there is a, a significant amount of of non-pg related content in this story but yet they had to sort of make it work um supposedly katzenberg at the end the only reason he kept in with the the production itself was because of its and and this was the buzzword at the time it's toyetic potential uh, everybody was looking for a piece of that toy money. Uh, Star Wars had certainly proven the the long-term reliability of toy sales at propping up a brand. And so they hoped that Rocketeer would sort of fit that bill. Uh, and, and they did spend a lot of money on, on you know, 
toys and video games to an extent. Um, uh, there were a lot of video games for the Rocketeer. I, I have all of them. The Super Nintendo game was actually pretty good. Um, hard as balls, though. Holy crap. Uh, that last... Most Super Nintendo uh, games were pretty <laughs> difficult. That's, uh, that last Zeppelin one was tough to get through. But uh, in any case, they, they did try, right? So they did push this. And it's another sort of... You know, we see a similar thing happen with, with Tron 2 or Tron Legacy, uh, you know, 20 years later, where... Disney feels like they have a property that could sort of break through and then it doesn't happen and then everything just kind of stalls and that's what happens for the Rocketeer as well. But um, Stevens is, is was a pro- supposedly very involved with the film. He was there pretty much every day in a, an advisory capacity. He also provided pretty much all of the reference material that they use to to build out like the hangar, uh, the types of uh, apparently the gyrocopter was one of his designs that he had had pulled all of his reference for, and that's how they designed that. I mean, so so he was as involved with the production as he could be, to the point that you know apparently Disney was pretty annoyed with him, feeling like he was trying to to sort of you know be more involved than he should be. But apparently his his input was was very important, most specifically and perhaps most importantly. It was Stevens who nailed the design of the physical helmet, which everyone in the production until Stevens basically redesigned it himself, they were going to put Rocketeer in a space helmet, like a NASA <laughs> helmet, because they just couldn't make the helmet work. And he sat down with one of the, uh, one of the sculptors and, and basically showed him how to translate his design for the helmet in the comic books into a 3d model that looked good from every angle. And and they did it over a weekend and then they basically went with that exact design. So, and and I can say unequivocally without question that the design of the Rocketeer helmet is one of the most gorgeous things that's ever been. It's just a really cool looking character. It's, it's a great, it's a great design. Um, and, and so, you know, Stevens is, is fantastic. Uh, If you've never read any of the Rocketeer comics, all of them have been collected. There are not a ton of them, to be honest. A lot of the more recent Rocketeer comics were just done by people who were huge fans like Kurt Busiek. Um, and and they've sort of continued the Rocketeer stories. There is a Disney Junior show now (laughs) called like Rocketeer Junior. Yeah, I read about that. That Um, seems weird to me. It's, it's cute. Um, there's a nice handoff in the very first episode and we find out that the girl who is, you know, the little kid rocketeer, uh, her grandpa was Cliff Secord and he sort of passed down the, the rocket pack to his family and it's, and, and Billy Campbell actually, you know, did a little cameo and, and it, it was very cute. Um, it is most definitely a show for, for little, little kids though. I mean, it's yeah. like four or five kind of thing, but who knows? Maybe that. Those four to five year olds will grow up and then Disney's like hit them when they're 15 with adult rocketeer coolness. I, I don't know. Who knows the, the far reaching plans of the Disney machine. But so find rocketeer stuff. Rocketeer stuff is good. Dave Stevens. Good. Uh, rocketeer. Good. <laughs> Go find it. Yeah. Uh, even if you don't like this movie, there's there's a lot of really cool rocketeer uh, stuff out there. Uh, I actually just was super excited. I just found the Diamond Select 
uh, Rocketeer figure uh, at, at our local Walgreens, of all places. Walgreens and, uh, has some steals with the toy department. Yeah, I don't know uh, what I that's all about, that. but and I find beautiful. a lot of good, especially Disney toys, which is mm-hmm. really strange. I don't know. Yeah, they had a bunch of Tron ones there for a while too. Mm. I didn't, per- I didn't get all of those, but uh, yeah, I've, I have too many little slabs of plastic rolling around here, but I wasn't going to pass up on that one. That was pretty good. In any case, um, so this was a a tumultuous film, and unfortunately, that seems to happen to Joe Johnston a lot. Um, and, and somehow he's still able to carve surprisingly awesome things out of all those troubles. But, um, so a couple of other interesting connections, definitely for us. Uh, so I mentioned the writers of this film uh, were uh, Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeo, longtime writing team. They've worked in Hollywood together for a long time. Uh, I guess Bilson, at this point, is probably best known for being the father of Rachel Bilson. Um, and I know there are a few people out there who are members of the OGOC club, right? Uh, back when California was cool. And, uh, you know, she appeared in that show. That's that's his daughter. But uh, I care about Bilson and DeMeo because they were part of Charles Band's, you know, Barry, Band of Mary, you know, independent film guys in the 1980s. And they wrote perhaps one of my favorite low-budget sci-fi films. And that, of course, is Trancers. Oh, dry hairs for squids. With uh, Tim Thomerson and a very, very young Helen Hunt. And by golly, do I love Trancers. I've watched Trancers so many times. We're going to talk about Trancers on this show. We have not yet reached... We have not yet reached the point here that we're digging deep into the 80s, um, you know, sort of vault that exists inside our minds. But Trancers is one that we're going to dig out in probably sooner rather than later. But uh, they also wrote that and and had, uh, you know, some success in that independent film scene. Didn't they also do Viper? They did. (laughs) They absolutely did. I have special interest in Viper because James (laughs) McCaffrey is the best. That's right. Uh, he he did not have a tremendous. Uh, I mean, he did have a really good uh, you know, career, but yeah, it's uh, not in the same way. But he did uh, Max Payne. Which he is the voice we know of him. the love of my life. <laughs> exactly. Uh, they did Zone Troopers as well, which was another one uh, that I, I kind of like. Uh, it's it's ridiculous, but it is a. A pretty cool um, little story about World War II members uh, who get lost and there's an alien spaceship. It's it's bonkers, but it's a lot of fun. Uh, in any case, uh, those are the guys that crafted the, the narrative uh, for this Rocketeer, which follows the original, I want to say like two and a half comics really closely. Um, but I, I guess let's just let's just jump in and uh, get started. I, I'm sure that's more than enough background for most people. But uh, I could I could wax philosophical about the Rocketeer kind of forever and and uh, have a great time at it. So the Rocketeer. We open on a black screen. The music fades up, and we get one of the best scores. 
the James Horner. It's so good. The music in this is so produced. Good. Um, this opening in particular, it it really smacks. Again, the, this movie. I don't think we can say it enough. Is hearkening back to it not only a different time in America or what have you, but a different time in filmmaking. It's trying to be evocative of a period, it, the veneer that Hollywood created of a time. And one of the things that helps nail that is the music. Because much like uh, The Natural did, uh, Barry Levinson, um, to try and you know show off the 1940s, we get these very, these very big, flowing sort of woodwinds is welcoming you into this but the the anchor of this this soundtrack that i love is this low that just sort of anchors everything together it's gorgeous and the the opening shot of this is of the hangar doors being pulled open right because we're on a black screen the hangar doors pull open and we get you know shots of planes hustle and bustle people moving things around and just these beautiful strains that that the music itself evokes the time, right? And it's it's just fantastic. Uh, I, I legitimately think that this, it might be Horner's best score. Um, and that's saying something, because Horner wrote some Everything. of my favorite scores <laughs> ever. Like, I mean, dude, dude did Aliens, yeah. right? Like, the Aliens score is burned into my brain forever, um, dun, 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 like dun, so much so that if any other right, movie yeah. tries to riff on it, it's like, "What are you doing? Yeah, I see like, what you're doing. I know Stop what you're it. doing." I mean, he did Aliens, he did Field of Dreams, which again feels very much like this. He did Apollo 13, which again feels like this. Braveheart, Titanic, for God's sakes. Uh, I mean, just it, the other the other one, the, the connection to our film last week. He also did something wicked. This way comes. Uh, the the redone version, the one that they actually released. So, I mean, like, just fantastic. It's so good. Um, and it just, Johnston matches it. He matches it to the action so beautifully. Um, you know, you'll find a lot of people who talk about, you know, John Williams gets gets this all the time, that John Williams' music, the the problem with it is that it's telling you how to feel. Right, like that. It's it's music that's always communicating very clearly. Here is the emotion that you are meant to be feeling in the scene, which is why, honestly, it it works really well for George Lucas because George Lucas does very little to tell you how to feel <laughs> in his scenes. Right, like there's not yeah. a lot of emotion in the actual like filmed direction of what George Lucas is doing. So having somebody come in after that and score it with like a oh this is a sad part is is really helpful. This score doesn't do that. It's it's not that. It's not that functional. It's really more just evocative of of a moment in time. And and it's got just that soaring quality to it, right? It feels like music appropriate for a movie with a lot of flying in it. <laughs> and that is just such a difficult thing to articulate. But that's what music can do. And and Horner's score is is just great. It's just absolutely glorious. And this first scene does everything it needs to do to establish 
what we need to know. Um, the the Red Letter Media guys did a, a video on Rocketeer not too long ago, and I'm of course a big fan of theirs. And mm-hmm. you know, one of the things they pointed out is just how kind of perfectly constructed this screenplay is. It hits every. I mean, if you sit down and look at screenwriting books for all the things you need to do to make sure your movie works as as a film, you know, you establish all of your central conflicts in your first. 10 to 12 minutes you establish your main characters you you know ratchet up the tension with an interesting discovery like i mean you've just you've got all of those beats here but all of them are being executed perfectly like johnson has taken the the script components and he has has locked them into place exactly as needed and you can feel all that working here all right we don't know anything about cliff we know he's a little bit of a butthead we know he's cocky as hell as any stunt pilot would be but we find out pretty quickly who all these people are and and how much is riding on all of this and how important his success is for all of them. And, you know, then his plane soars off and we pick up the other story, which, of course, is a couple of mobsters being chased by some FBI guys. In one, Los of those monsters, in one of those mobsters is Rom from Deep Space from Nine. From Deep Space Nine. <laughs> One of his, I mean, he did a lot of stuff, but this is one of his only other like big acting credits. Um, I get so excited when I see him. Yeah, it's so weird to see him without Ferengi makeup on. Um, But we get a good old fashioned car chase. Always a great thing to to start off a movie like this. Um, And, you know, again, it's, it's really cool to, you know, to see a movie that's not trying to be realistic, right? Cause we're getting all of the standard sort of, you know, FBI tough guy dialogue, right? Careful what you wish for buddy. You know, that kind of thing. It's all very, um, it feels very old Hollywood and in a good way, right? Like you could be watching, you know, a Bogart movie or something like that. Um, which is what I'll say Johnson does really well. When he decides that that's what he wants, he's capable of sort of maintaining that tone and structure. He does it again with Captain America First Avenger. Uh, and make no mistake, the Rocketeer got him that job, right? This film is what convinced Kevin Feige that Joe Johnston should absolutely direct that film because... Nobody else can grab this time or these or this moment in history like Joe Johnston. Um, nobody else has proven themselves to be able to do it. And, and he's done it at this point a couple of times. So I, I guess from a, a plot standpoint, Cliff is, is flying his plane over the fields. He, he sort of mistakenly sort of buzzes down as this chase is going on. And one of the mobsters shoots his brand new plane. And this plane is, is a GB. Uh, which is a, a racing plane, stunt plane. Um, and, and you know from the beginning, uh, again, just the really carefully chosen bits of dialogue, that the plane is new, the paint is fresh, right? This is his first flight because um, he's, he's setting up the cockpit. We get the, the shot of his girl, in this case, uh, Jennifer Connelly playing uh, Ginny Blake. Um, all, of, all of that is How many is, times is, is she going to show up on this podcast? Jennifer Connelly. This is like uh, her third or fourth more. appearance. Hopefully a lot more because, I mean, it comes Connelly, up all but, the time. But so uh, 
you know, just a lot of really good, very fast visual storytelling. Um, yeah. We talk all the time on here about setup and payoff, setup and payoff, right? You tell me and then you tell me again, you tell me and then you show me. Um, and this movie has it everywhere, right? One of the first lines that PV says in this movie as Cliff sticks gum on the back of his plane for good luck is piece of gum ain't going to keep your butt in the air. At the end of the movie, a piece of gum keeps Cliff's butt in the air, yeah. right? Like it's it's just, it's it's kind of perfect. Uh, the script, I, I might even go to say the script is, is, is kind of perfect um, for a movie of this type, right? Like I guess we have to have that caveat in there. Like this is a very specific kind of movie doing some very specific things, right? It's an action film, but it's also kind of a family film. Uh, it's also supposed to be a period film. So we've got all of these these pieces that need to fit. And, and God, like 95% of the time, got everything. they make it fit. It has everything. It has literally everything. I actually and said that while I was watching it. Um, really? My husband was kind yeah, of popping it had been a while out of the room. Since you had seen it, yeah. Yeah, it had, it had been years. Um because like I, I was telling you the last time I watched it, I was sick and uh, I don't know, I was kind of falling asleep. So I don't think I was really paying attention. Um, so it had been even longer since I'd had a good watch of a film. And uh, yeah, he came in while I was I was going through it. And I was like, this movie has everything. <laughs> I think something was blowing up at that moment. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> I think, you know the people who accused it of being mechanical, that's what they're hitting on is that the movie feels very carefully constructed to hit sort of every beat that a movie should hit, right? Like it's got all those elements. It has romance, action, suspense, you know, the, you know, if you go back and look at old movie trailers and they've got the big, <laughs> the big title cards, romance, right? And then you see two people kiss action. You see a guy get punched suspense and you see a girl go, <gasps> right? Like, this movie has literally everything, like almost like they were ticking boxes, but it, it doesn't ever, to me, when I watch it, it never feels that mechanical. It just feels complete, right? It just feels like a, a, a fairly cohesive whole. And so to, to get our plot off the ground, right, we've learned about Cliff, we've learned about Peavy and his little crew of guys that got this plane. We, we've got the, the chase in progress. We don't know what that's about, but we know that Rom keeps <laughs> grabbing at some case marked top secret or something. Um, and then Cliff's plane gets shot, right? And it starts malfunctioning almost immediately. Which I, I absolutely love the, the way that Johnson sort of paints it because he... Basically, the, the oil starts sort of sputtering out of the engine, and we've got some really fantastic on what appears to be on-plane photography. I, I honestly don't know. I, I almost think they would have to be special effects shots, but if they are pure special effects shots, they are very, very good for this time. Um, because like as the, the plane is, is beginning to malfunction, it's smoking out the back, and it sure looks like... Uh, our our hero, our Cliff Secord, played here by Billy Campbell, is is legitimately in the cockpit of this thing. Uh, now these racing planes were really small and really tight, so his he he has to be strapped into the cockpit, and basically the the windshield is just the size of his face. Yeah. Right, it's There's, horrible. Uh, 
it's horrifying. Like if you were at all claustrophobic or have claustrophobic issues, get into this coffin and then we'll put it in the air. (laughs) Exactly. When you crash, it'll be great. Um, But so oil starts sputtering and covering it. Uh, He has to punch out the windscreen, which is just so cool. Um, Again, for establishing like his, not only his, his strength, but his, his tenacity, right? He's going to punch this thing out that he's just getting oil, you know, shot in his face. But his plane's going down, and and here we establish very quickly, you know, A, that Cliff Secord is a great pilot, uh, and B, that you know, his life, which was seemingly on the upswing, is absolutely swinging immediately in the other direction. I also love, as a little insert, insert shot, that Cliff flies over a billboard, and what is on that billboard but Wings of Honor starring... Neville Sinclair. Yeah. Um, and I, I love this kind of thing because this is completely unnecessary. You don't need this shot in the movie at all to tell the story that's currently being told, but it sets up not only what we'll eventually find to be the main villain of the film, but the movie that he goes to see with Ginny later that night. Uh, it's it's just, again, chef's kiss emoji. Just perfect, right? Everything you need to know right here. Um, because they get into a big argument about the fact that Neville Sinclair doesn't know anything about flying planes, uh, based on that movie. Right. Uh, so it's, it's just, it's a really, really nice thing. So the plane comes down. It's one of the best filmed plane crashes I think I've ever seen. Um, because the, the cars are on the runways he's trying to land as he comes in, which he almost pulls off, which I also think is perfect. Like, if the cars had not been on the runway, Cliff would have landed that plane. Yeah. Uh, despite the fact that everything had gone wrong. But because they interfered and because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time, he crashes the plane, knocks off the landing gear, uh, and is had... And, and basically, they have to pull him from the burning wreckage of a plane that was supposed to be their their salvation, basically. Uh, and of course, he goes back to grab Ginny's picture. And it's just, I don't know. It, it's a constant stream of action from the moment he gets in the plane until the moment that he lands. There's no respite. There's no rest. It's it's intercut beautifully. Um the it manages to is great. build a it's, lot of little character things about Cliff just in the moment, you know, him being able to think on his feet and being such a talented pilot. And you get his relationship with Peavy in the beginning and nothing overstays its welcome. And it just, it's just good. Yeah. And then you get to see that he's a little bit of a hothead and he's kind of an idiot because he, you know, dukes out the, the FBI guy, um, yeah. you know, cause he's, he's doing what, what you would think, which is, you know, Hey, you guys interfered and, and crashed my plane. I need that plane. You guys need to pay for it. So again, I, I love it because it's a good scene, but it's also giving us a lot of information about, about, uh, them, you know, without this plane, they're out a lot of money. They're going to have a lot of problems. Um, it's, I don't know. It's it's probably one of the best examples of having a compelling you know series and sequence, but at the same time giving you lots and lots of story information and character information, and that is is difficult to manage. And and Johnson here does it perfectly. Um, needless to say, the uh, mobsters are able to dump 
whatever it was that they were trying to steal in Cliff's other plane, right? The plane that he unfortunately is forced to fly as part of a stunt show uh, that he wants to get away from. He's trying to get out of that life. And of course, has just been issued a pretty significant setback. I just, I love the dialogue between the FBI agents. It feels so of that period, um, at least the, the Hollywood version of that period. And it's it, it just really compelling, really good lines, very quotable. A lot of the lines in this movie are super quotable. But I, I, I do just adore the way that that sequence plays out. Uh, and again, we're, we're 10 minutes into the movie, right? We are, we are you know, perfectly on, on course to, um, you know, sort of get through our, our first your sort of initial opening act so that we can push in. So after the, uh, the the fire's put out, they they discover what they believe to be the jetpack. We find out very quickly that it's it's really just a, or we could tell really that's just a vacuum cleaner. Um, but we cut to um, a man that we come to know as Howard Hughes, and Hughes says that he's kind of glad that it's been destroyed and that the dream is over. He looks through a beautiful. I guess we we need to mention the production design of this movie. It is art deco like nobody's freaking business. Um, Stevens was a, a master at, at this kind of architectural drawing, and, and he had a, an innate seeming understanding of how art deco worked. And this movie leaned into that, right? Like imagine, you know, Disney money <laughs> trying to recreate 1940s Hollywood, right? And that's yeah. what we get here. So Howard Hughes is in this gorgeous, you know, wood paneled office. Everything is is you know, painted and beautiful. Wonderful fonts. Everywhere. <laughs> Everywhere, right? so we all see, the fonts. <laughs> it's, it's just immaculate. It's, it's just beautiful. But we can see that the plan was to debut at the 1939 World's Fair a Howard Hughes-designed rocket pack. But he says the dream's over, throws it on the fire. Uh, we'll ne we're never going to get that prototype back. So we cut back to PV and... Um, Come back to, to PV and Cliff, and, and we find out that uh, Mr. Bigelow, the guy who owns the airfield that they work out of, has now started to, he's going to charge them for all of the damage that was caused during the altercation. So the, the fuel that was destroyed, and the only way that he can pay, they can pay them back is by Cliff continuing to fly this old biplane, what is Mabel, is that the name of the plane, uh, in this, this horrible stunt show for you know reduced rates and you know bigelow is is the perfect sort of i don't know sort of mook character that you would see at this time who's just out for himself but i the thing that i love about this scene and and really the next couple of them is the way that they very quickly build this sort of cool relationship between cliff and pv alan arkin so. is the best He's the best at everything, and he remains the best at everything, but he is super good in this movie. Uh, Stevens had based um, PV on an animator that he worked with on one of his jobs, like a guy that he saw as kind of a mentor to him and sort of taught him how to, 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 to draw and, and you know, be good. And, you know, you can feel that sort of, you know, tough mentor character ingrained here and, and alan 
Alan Arkin is is just perfect for this. They aged him up a little bit. He wasn't this old when he made the movie, but they they certainly sort of leaned into that a bit more. But it's great. Like he and Cliff, you know, they're they're friends. They've worked together. They live together. Um, it's it's just a, a fantastic relationship, and it's established so quickly and so cleanly between these two characters that you don't really have any questions about it. It just feels like an old married couple, which I kind of think is part of the joke um, that these these guys kind of treat each other like a married couple and that they they sort of, you know, sort of like they're grumpy old men together kind of thing. It's a sweet relationship. It is. And it, it feels, again, very of a time, right? Um so we don't really waste any time. They they find the, the hidden rocket pack. Cliff is goofing around with it when he shouldn't be, fires it off, and they figure out, oh, okay, this is this is something special. Uh PV, of course, is an aeronautics engineer, so he's fascinated by the you know, sort of inner workings of it. He identifies its fuel source very quickly. They're shocked that it's, you know, cool to the touch, even though it was obviously just, you know firing um and they quickly ascertain that it is indeed a human rocket pack so i am awesome and it is awesome it's so well designed it's a pretty stark different it's it doesn't look like the the stevens version the stevens version looked a lot like the commander cody one which was just a sort of single jet turbine um you know, so they they modified it a bit and and changed it to a, a dual engine setup, but it, it's it's glorious. Uh, actually, one of my we visited Disney World years ago now, mm-hmm. but uh, at the time in in Hollywood Studios they had a, a large just section of Hollywood memorabilia, and they had the the Rocketeer suit there at that time. I think it's it's in California now. And and one of my favorite pictures of myself is me standing next to that costume, and that engine is on it, uh, and it is and it was gorgeous in person, right? I, I, it was just incredibly well designed. They had the original metal version, and they had the stunt, the sort of foam version the stunt actor would wear uh, side by side, and it was awesome. So it's it's a great design. It's it's kind of beautiful. Um, and and you know we're we're off to the races now like the film wastes zero time so they go and they they cut down a statue of charles Lindbergh. <laughs> i like that they cut down the statue they didn't get like a scarecrow or no. like a bag of hay or something they went and just no. cut down a whole statue cut down a statue of lucky lindy and uh, they're gonna go strap him up and see what see if he can really still fly, uh, which I think is great because at this point Lindbergh had like fallen completely out of favor too. So it's a little bit of like an aviator's in joke that Lindbergh wasn't that great a pilot, and he was kind of a mess, uh, which is you know again just sort of doubly funny. But they go and they steal him, they throw him in the back of the truck, and and they're obviously gonna get up to some shenanigans. Uh, now we cut to um, Paul Sorvino. Mm. Gosh, you love Paul Sorvino playing the uh, Richie Valentine, an obvious sort of just generic. I mean, that's the thing is like most of the characters in this are like at this point, generic stereotypes. But the way this movie mixes them up and presents them and plays with them is so much fun. And so he plays uh, 
this mobster, obviously the guy that was in charge of the people who caused all the havoc at the uh, airfield earlier that day, but they are working for Neville Sinclair. Uh, played the here best with... villain name in the entire world. It's, it's a good one. It sounds villainous. <laughs> it does. You know, it sounds ritzy and kind of fancy, but obviously villainous at its core. Played here with delicious aplomb by Timothy Dalton. Um, so this is is pre-James Bond, Timothy Dalton? I guess it would have to be. Or was he? No, he was right in the middle of his, his uh, James Bond run when he made this. Yeah. Um, and... I mean, he's chewing scenery like nobody's business, but he's having a great time and he's doing a really good job. Again, another sort of, I don't know if it's a Hollywood in joke, but uh, uh, it was, it was, I guess it was proposed in an unauthorized biography of Errol Flynn that was, was not vetted until much, much later. Uh, and in it, he proposed this this biographer proposed that Errol Flynn had been a secret Nazi, uh, a spy working for the Nazis in the United States, using his fame to cover his actions. Um, it was ridiculous, and but it, it did significant harm to Errol Flynn's sort of late life career, and and it wasn't until the like eighties or nineties that people had refuted it and said like this is patently ridiculous. So. Uh, Stevens was was very much sort of playing on this at the time, and uh, Bilson and DeMeo sort of brought that in. But so Dalton's character here is is the mastermind behind the acquisition of the rocket. Uh, that's what he wants. It's what he's looking for. But the film does a very good job of sort of masking why. Right at this point in the movie, we don't really know why or what he's up to. We know he's up to something, and we know that he has Confederates, but there are other issues at play. So he makes a phone call at the end of that scene as Richie promises to get the the machine, and we cut to Lothar. So again, Stevens had a sort of encyclopedic knowledge of of nineteen fifties and forties and even thirties film. And so, like many people of that era, he was familiar with a particular actor named Rondo Hatton. So, Rondo Hatton was a, a journalist, if I remember correctly. He was a journalist in Florida who was exceptionally tall, and he garnered the attention of a film producer who put him in one of his movies because of his distinctive look. Um... Very famously, it was it was known either after his death or, or even towards the end of his life that he suffered from a, a condition called acromegaly, uh, which is the same condition that Andre the Giant suffered from. Uh, and it is a, a benign tumor, a growth, basically on your pituitary gland that causes an overproduction of human growth hormone. Uh, so people who have acromegaly, like uh, Robert Wadlow, the world's tallest man. Shout uh, who out was to what? Alton, Illinois. That's right, Alton, Illinois. Um, was eight, what, eight foot nine when He's he died? Huge. Um, he had acromegaly. So Rondo Hatton uh, had this this condition, 
And uh, as he aged, it caused a, a very distinctive set of facial features to appear. Uh, he did not always look that way. Uh, it happened as acromegaly continued and he continued to grow. Because basically you never stop growing, right? You're like your body never reaches the point where it says, oh, I'm done growing now. You just keep growing forever. And um, so Hot, uh, Hatton had an, an incredibly distinctive face and he was cast in a number of horror films. Um, I guess the most... He was in the Oxbow Incident. That's where I knew him from because uh, our dad made us watch Westerns all the time. <laughs> um, but he was in uh, The Hunchback of Notre Dame with Charles Lawton. He did that with him. Um, and And... and you know, but he, the character of Lothar in the Rocketeer is Rondo Hatton, right? The the character in the comic book was was drawn to look like Rondo Hatton, and the character Lothar in the Rocketeer is is fully based upon Rondo Hatton's appearance. Uh, he's not obviously not played by Rondo Hatton. Rondo Hatton died in the nineteen forties. Uh, I think he's, it's Tiny Ron, Tiny Tiny Ron Lister. I think is who plays him. I believe so. Yeah, but Tiny he, Ron Taylor. So yeah, Taylor. yeah, something like that. But anyway, um, so you know, Lothar too is is a reference, a callback to films of that era. Um, but he is sort of uh, Sinclair's enforcer, right? He's the the heavy that he sends in to get things done. Um, but then we we rapidly cut back again. This film has kind of a breathless pace. I. I feel like modern audiences would still find it boring, but it, it keeps moving at a surprising clip, right? It never really slows down, um, at least not for a while. But in any case, you know, we get PV and uh, Cliff testing the rocket pack. Obviously, they don't just want to strap it to, to Cliff and see what happens. So they've, they've stolen this, this statue of Charles Lindbergh. And and they've they've staked it to the ground and they're checking out, you know, whether or not the rocket is capable of, of sustaining flight. And of course it is. But it goes wrong. The stake pulls out of the ground. The rocket pack takes off into the sky. And, and you know, now they've they've lost it. Um, another moment where Cliff and PV are right on the edge of something special and it just gets taken away from them. Or so they think. Because, of course, the rocket pack comes right back. <laughs> and uh, buzzes them and and they're they're able to recover it but when they recover it they find that the head of the statue has been nearly destroyed and this prompts pv to suggest that they're going to need a helmet which of course leads to the greatest helmet design in the history of anything ever but it rivals the boba fett's it does it is it is certainly of a piece with the boba fett's all of the boba fett's even the lady Boba Fett's, like Even I saw lady in the Boba TV Fett's show, with the, little, <laughs> with the little horns. That's right. But I mean, there's just a lot of bumbling comedy here. That's the other thing I really like about this movie is that it's it's actually funny. Uh, there's really good. There's a good sense of comedy and humor. There's a lot of, of verbal, you know, back and forth between these characters. That's snappy and fun. But. In this scene, we get a little bit of that, but we also get sort of Cliff's ambition, right? Um, which is the other thing that that his character kind of needs, right? He needs to to have that wistful, 
you know, I, I've got to try this. I've got to do something kind of attitude because putting yourself in a suit like that or putting yourself with a rocket pack like that is insane. And, and PV's trying to communicate that, right? Like you can't put this on. There, there is no telling what will happen to you if you do this. And he's like, ah, we'll, we'll work it out. So that scene comes to an end. We immediately cut to Jenny, right? So Cliff's girlfriend who is living at a boarding house for women in New York, uh, in Los Angeles, uh, which again, we don't have any real, you know, sort of modern cultural reference point for this at all, but it was not uncommon at that time to live in a sort of basically a gendered apartment complex where you had like your house matron and, and the whole nine yards to, to sort of keep you safe from all of the, the terrible men out there who were going to come after you. And of course her first appearance is a sort of pinup move as she puts on her, her stockings and, you know, secures them to her garter belt. It's, it's very PG. Like, don't get me wrong. Like we're not seeing anything, but it is obviously meant to evoke that uh, sort of pinup girl history uh, that Ginny as a character or Betty as a character was based on. I did, I did read one interesting thing as I was doing some research for this, that Dave Stevens actually found out in the eighties before this came out that he lived fairly close to Betty page and he just went over and looked her up and, and introduced himself. And it was actually Dave Stevens who used his knowledge of publishing to help her get the rights back on all of the photos of her so that she could start earning money off of her image again. Cause yeah. she was, was basically just kind of living in, I mean, I'm sure she was doing okay, but he, he actually helped her. He befriended, they became friends and he was the one who helped her sort of restart her career in terms of, of, you know, you, issuing her likeness out and actually receiving compensation for it. Um, which I, I think is awesome. Right. But in any case, uh, so Jenny, as we said, is an aspiring actress and, and she is seemingly quite, quite fond of cliff. Uh, and we see that cliff cleans up pretty good, right? He's got a fancy little sweater on and, you know, his, his pilot's, I don't know. I don't even know what those pants are called. The ones that have like the flared sides. I mean, I, I've always thought of them like riding pants. What are they? Jodpers. Jodpers. Okay. So he's got his jodpers on, his high boots. Um, and I mean, I guess we can really just take a moment here and say that you know, Bill Campbell is. He's hmm. a good looking man. Uh, he That is that is a uh, quality good hair. looking dude. Oh, great hair. Like Nathan Fillion hair. I mean, it's like excellent nineties hair. It's just... Yeah. Yeah. Bill Campbell was the, the early nineties, Nathan Fillion. And then Nathan Fillion became the late nineties, Nathan Fillion. Yeah. But yeah, like I guess it's also worth noting that uh, Jennifer Connelly and Bill Campbell actually did get together during the making of this. Um, and they had a, a relationship for, for quite a few years after this. They, they might even have a kid together. I think they do. Um, and, and you can legitimately feel that on screen. Like their chemistry is, is pretty palpable. Um, 
as a couple like they they do kind of smolder with each other on screen and it's and it's pretty great um i i you know just it, their relationship works it honestly the 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 Ginny and cliff relationship doesn't get a tremendous amount of screen time in this movie um it gets a lot and and Ginny is actually one of the rare a lot of women in movies like this get sort of pushed to the side very quickly. And Jenny actually does have a pretty important role to play in the film, which I think is great. Um, but it's, it's not, they overdone. do a lot with, it's not overdone and they do a lot with a little right. Um, which with relationships in a film like this, I think is, is really key. It's kind of, it reminds me a little bit of the relationship between, uh, Bruce Willis and Bonnie Bedelia in Die Hard, right? Like they don't yeah. have a ton of screen time together. They don't have a ton of scenes where they're working together or talking to each other, but using, you know, the power of film and, you know, juxtaposition of scenes and things like that. And, and even just a little bit of time they spend together at the beginning, you get a really good handle on their relationship, how it works, what's good, what's bad. And this film has uh, some similar qualities, right? Which in an action movie, you, you want to have these core components. You can't omit them. You know, you, it's pretty much de rigueur that your action movie is going to have some kind of romance subplot in it. But this movie handles it extremely well and it comes across exactly as it should, in my opinion. Um, but so they go to the movies, we get another little setup and payoff because we find out from the newsreel at the beginning of the movie that the Nazi Zeppelins are making their way across the United States, which becomes extremely important later in the film. And again, just really carefully, perfectly arranged and designed. And then we see Lothar torturing Rom. Rom. Poor, poor Rom. No. Um, He's, he doesn't he doesn't want to be tortured. He's already hurt real bad and he's in traction. He just wants to be left alone to heal. But you know, that's that's not gonna work for for good Mr. Neville Sinclair. And so uh, again, the the facial work to, to sort of recreate Rondo Hatton uh, is exceptional like it's it's the facial prosthetics hold up really well like they don't look bad they they seem you know really well done and it, it and it looks exactly like rondo hatton which is incredible i'm surprised they're able to get away with it really um but uh yeah he uh lothar uh just sort of pretzels him just sort of you know cracks him in half with his brute strength and then just goes out and hides on the window ledge, which I, I can't imagine. I like the little feet shuffling the away. The little shuffling feet. Yeah, that was like so sweet. Pans over to the window and you see these giant like size 18 shoes and they're just kind of shuffling out the of the teeny, direction. teeny tiny little shuffles. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, then we, we sort of cut back to a place that we'll, we'll come to frequently. Um, I, this is straight out of the comic book. Uh, the design of this diner, it, the diner is basically a dog. It's like a pit bull. Yep. And, and inside is a very traditional sort of 1930s booths in a bar diner. Um, and, and here we get sort of better introduced to the, the cast of characters around Cliff's life. We see all the guys who were out there with him on the airfield earlier airfield earlier that day and the primary one that gets introduced is um malcolm 
and Malcolm is the, uh, you know, he's supposed to be the, the wizened older pilot that, uh, you know, has, has sort of seen his time pass and, and he's still working at the rocket. He, he, well, he's working at the airfield. He's, he's helping out in any capacity he can, but he's got the shakes. He's, he's obviously a drinker and, you know, it's, it's kind of a cool, he serves as a bit of comic relief. He plays a, a part in an important plot point coming up in a bit, but in this scene, what makes it work so well is that he represents what Cliff could become, right? Or, or what Cliff could be. And, and Jenny, this scene is really focused on her because she is in the midst of all of these people that Cliff is very comfortable with. He's all smiles. He's having a great time. And she feels a bit out of sorts and uncomfortable. You know, she's dressed very nicely. And, and of course, the, the sort of focus of the scene is as Malcolm is attempting to repair a toy plane he makes a mistake, plops the, the wheel into her soup and splashes it all over her. You kind of get to the which, feeling she wants a little more than Knights exactly, in the Exactly. Exactly. Like, Cliff is perfectly happy to, to just go to this diner and do his thing and not really worry about it. And, and she is, is desperate for something and anything else. And so that's when she, you know she's complaining and he's like, what do you want to go to the South seas club? And of course that's set up the payoff. Cause later, where do they wind up? The South seas South club. Seas um, you know, so it's the, the cracks in their relationship start to show a little bit here, mostly because they want different things. Cliff is, is very satisfied with his life. His, his ambition is to, to, you know, become a better flyer to, to gain some, you know, gain some notoriety, I suppose, but, but not necessarily to leave this life or any of these people. And, and they have certainly, uh, you know, diverged, but I, I love, uh, one of the other things is, um, we get a very early performance here from Margot Martindale. Who is lovely all the time. I love She's her. so good. I mean, this is like four or five years from when she started acting. Um, yeah, this is her fifth film role. And and she gets the best line in this scene because, you know, Ginny storms out. Cliff just kind of sits there like a dope because he's dope. And she's like, well, go after her, idiot. <laughs> like, you know, go get her. Um, but Margot Martindale is probably most, she does, a, 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 she's done an incredible amount of TV work. Um, she was in The Americans playing the handler and she was absolutely fantastic in that. Um, she's been in The Good Wife, which I know a lot of people love. Um, she was in, what she's was that in name? The Riches. With the Riches, uh, that's what I was thinking of with Eddie Izzard. Yeah, I mean, just, just a fantastic actress. And this is one of her earliest you know, sort of roles. So it's kind of cool to, to see, uh, to see her at that stage of her career, uh, especially, you know, dressed up in this, in the 1940s clothes with the cool hair, you know, she looks really cool as the, you know, she's the owner of this little, little diner. Uh, but I love that Cliff, like just sandwich and all with his napkins stuck out of his shirt, like runs out of the place to try and grab her. And of course, misses um I, I guess it's worth noting that malcolm is played by freddie jones as well uh and another just sort of fantastic actor this film is populated by it has kind of that perfect balance of 
known and then unknown, you know, stars, basically people who have done tremendous amounts of work. Uh, you know, I've always felt that Joe Johnson has a, a great eye for casting. Um, you know, which I, I know that the casting of Chris Evans as Captain America was not solely Joe Johnston's decision, right? There's, there's no way that he was allowed to make that choice on his own. But I firmly believe, because I believe that the Marvel Cinematic Universe would not work without Chris Evans as Captain America. Like it just collapses. The whole thing falls down. I really don't know how this next phase of the Marvel Universe is going to work without another character to kind of anchor all that stuff together. And it was Evans' ability to, to be that sort of cheesy, nostalgic, you know, man out of time endearing but kind of annoying at the you know like there are a lot of things that he does with Captain America that make a lot of the Marvel films that he's in function and I really think that a lot of that has to do with Johnston helping him establish that tone for the character in, in uh, First Avenger and I think we see a lot of that in operation here um, and and the mix of cast and the mix of actors that he puts into this film is just fantastic it's second to none but so as as cliff comes home that night he finds pv um working on a helmet or a potential helmet design and he starts i love that pv starts the design of the helmet with an old radio that's so cool uh it's it's an old radio right because the the lines the sort of art deco qualities of the the angles of the helmet it is it is not at all what he winds up with right like it's not even close but it's it's close enough that when cliff wakes up the next morning and finds the helmet you you buy that it it's sort of you know led to its creation it's it's the same way we buy that every superhero ends up with a really nicely made suit even right, if they're yeah. not incredibly rich like tony tony stark <clears throat> exactly but i do love that cliff still is sort of like Ugh, this looks ridiculous what are you thinking <laughs> and everybody in the audience is like it looks cool yeah doesn't he say it looks like a hood ornament i think that's what he says it's like a hood ornament um but then we get i don't know it it's one of the best scenes in the movie because and i uh, honestly in its execution i don't know how johnston pulls it off because he this is a scene you know it's it's the the you know shooting a scene of a scene right it's he's he's filming a scene being filmed for a movie but yet when it opens it seems like it's just part of our movie right it just seems like we're we're seeing another scene cuz the camera's operating and then it just pulls back and we see that it's it's all the facade and so what we're getting is uh, Neville Sinclair's new movie being filmed, which is, what is it? The Happy Bandit? The Masked Bandit? Something like that. Um, and uh, it is an obvious riff on, on Errol Flynn's Robin Hood character. Uh, the set is even the, the set from the, the final sort of climactic battle in Errol Flynn's Robin Hood, uh, recreated with surprising alacrity. And so he's in a big sword fight. He reveals himself, you know, <laughs> and, and he stabs a dude, dude falls, and then he's supposed to like swing over to a table and then the princess delivers a line 
and she just flubs it. Biffs it. <laughs> oh my, what is it? Oh my prince, that thou would lip, drink of my lips is deeply. <laughs> it's just <laughs> so bad. Everything stops. The director screams cut. He comes over and it's it's just all trashed and it's great. Uh, you know, he's pissed. We find out that it's the producer's niece. Is that what it is? Right? So it's yeah. all nepotism. And and of course, then it cuts and we see Jenny, who's just a, a random, you know, maid or what have you. And and she didn't get the part because she's not anybody's niece. And her her friend from the the boarding house is there. But it's cool, you know, it's it's a really great moment because he's filming it like a film would have shot it in the 1930s. Um the the laughing bandit that's the name of it yeah that's right and and he's filming it that way but then he also sort of pulls the curtain back and we get to see all of the you know the ridiculous nature of it aside from the fact that we're starting to get an inkling an idea that neville sinclair is not who he claims to be right he's something else and, you know, Cliff sort of walking around through the sets. And, of course, what does he eventually do? He knocks over the wall, which is, is like... And it ruins revealing. the perfect take. That's, it, that's my favorite right. part. <laughs> it ruins the good take. Not to mention it... But it, it thematically, it hangs with the fact that Neville is being revealed as this fake right yeah. that neville's world is fake and everything about him is fake not just the movies that he makes but the you know his life in general and then of course no, no, we're not supposed to stand whoa sorry Something and then of course that's okay uh, <clears throat> cliff identifies himself and says i'm looking for Jenny blake which of course you know causes all kinds of problems and gets her fired which you know further uh you know breaks them up but Neville, of course, overhears them talking about the rocket. So now he has a new line on how he can acquire this thing that he needs. And he knows that Ginny Blake uh, is potentially connected. So he, he makes connection with her and, uh, you know, gets her a better part and you know, all of this different stuff. But he is, is obviously manipulating and, and conniving to, to sort of get his way. Then we go back to some really fantastic aerial photography, right? We go back to the airfield. The mobsters are there looking for the rocket, believing that it's still somewhere on the airfield and they need to find it. Cliff arrives and realizes that Malcolm, the, the you know, sort of older pilot, the drunk pilot, has taken Mabel up for the stunt show, but he has not flown in years. And, and this is real bad. So I love this setup because what does the film need? The film needs an excuse for Cliff to have to put on the rocket pack. And what better excuse to put on the rocket pack than to save his friend? It's awesome, right? It's not self-serving. It's, it's necessary. He has to do it right now. There's no choice. You know, it's not tested. They haven't done everything they need to do. Doesn't matter. Got to put on the rocket pack. And I love it. It's it's again, it, it's near perfect to justify why he would put this thing on for the first time and go give it a try. And it sets up really probably the premiere action sequence in the film. 
Like it's the ones that it's the one that gives us the most the most shots of the Rocketeer in flight and and sort of doing cool stuff. Uh, which if I do have one beef with the film, it's my beef with all of the early superhero films, is that there there ain't enough superheroin in these yeah. movies. It was my issue with the original Batman, Batman Returns. Um, Batman Returns, he's in the Batman suit for like 16 minutes in that movie. And the rest <laughs> of that movie is not strong enough to compensate <laughs> for that. It really I isn't. Mean, Christopher Walken is great as uh. Max Shrek. <laughs> I, I definitely want to be there for that. But Brucey, Brucey baby, oh um, my God. you know, what it's just... Yeah. It's so weird, dude. But in any case, um, you know, he he's gotta put the suit on. And man, when he puts that helmet on for the first time and That's the rocket cool. pack is on his back, it's just it's perfect. The lighting is perfect, the setup is perfect. It's just it's so good. Um so he takes off. I love that that PV gets just knocked completely on his ass by the the jet wash of the rocket pack taken off. And and here we get an incredible mix of sort of ILM techniques of the early 90s. Uh, we're still pre-Jurassic Park here. So it's this is ILM not really be not really capable of of relying upon CG to do any of these shots. Um most of it, uh, there is a stop motion maquette that is used for for a lot of the flying shots. Um, there are there's a lot of you know standard blue screen and, and you know, replacement shots, etc. And then there's just straight up a bunch of shots of dudes falling through the air <laughs> with a, a rocket back on. Um, but it's it's such an exhilarating sequence, and it's so well done. Um, you know, there is a lot of fumbling, like Cliff is figuring out how to use the suit. So like the running joke is he he sort of lands and then he falls and then he goes back and then he falls and then he goes back and then he falls and he's like slow. You can I love it because you can see him slowly getting better with each with each effort. Right. Just a little bit here, a little bit there. And, and finally, he's starting to like figure it out. Um, especially when it comes to the actual controlling of the rocket pack itself. And then again, in a movie that has some great humor beats, <laughs> uh, what did Bigelow say at the beginning that he had moved the fuel? Like, cause that's the running gag, right? The fuel truck gets hit by the car at the beginning on Bigelow's airfield, blows it up. And so he says at the beginning of this, that he'd moved the, the, the fuel truck way off the, the <laughs> way <laughs> off the runway so that it wouldn't blow. And then where does the plane land after he rescues the guy? It lands exactly on the fuel truck and blows it up. And Bigelow is forced because he's trying to keep everybody calm. He's like, it's all part of the show. It's all part of the show. And and of course you can see he's you know frustrated that he's lost another bunch of fuel. So Rocketeer rescues Malcolm, you know, saves him. You know, it becomes this huge thing. Obviously, the press was all there for the air show, so they get tons of pictures of the flying man. They're they're you know chasing him. Let's try to get more shots, and we get you know a couple of just really grand flight sequences. He flies up next to an airplane and and uh, 
what he salutes right like he does the salute and he ends up hitting the thing on his <laughs> his hand to turn the jetpack off so he just falls straight out of the sky um you know again the special effects i think they hold up pretty well there you know there's there's some compositing you know marks and stuff like that but the the stop motion maquette is surprisingly good uh, a lot of the the sort of medium shots are of the the stop motion puppet that was put together. I guess they called it a go motion puppet. Uh, it was more the the sort of ILM go motion stuff because you could do uh, motion blur with them to replicate it. Um, but you know he flies th- he flies through a clothesline. It's just it's it's funny. Like it's a great sequence. It's energetic and exciting. But at the same time, you know, it's it's Cliff kind of figuring out what the Rocketeer is going to be and what what he is. Uh, I do. I, I guess I have to mention I do love the shot where he's going through the cornfield and it just cuts those two farmers. <laughs> and they're like, there's big gophers out there. <laughs> Whatever they say, like there's a big gopher. Uh, it's just you know, again, it's a good line. It's funny. It's exciting. You know, it's exhilarating. And, and then you know, Cliff finally comes to a stop. And it's a sequence that I have come to expect from Joe Johnson movies. Mm-hmm. This kind of light, action-packed, almost humorous section of the film. Yeah, I mean, it's it's something that he excels at is is balancing those those needs of of something exciting, action-packed, something a little funny, something a little silly, and, and sort of just pushing them all together into a cohesive whole, and. You know, of course, it's capped with Billy Campbell, you know, looking at PV and saying, "I like it. Like, <laughs> I, I'm going to do that again." And it, I, I don't know what it is, but flight sequences in film, they just hit me in this crazy way. And when they're executed well, like, I, I just, I love it. Uh, there's a couple of scenes in the How to Train Your Dragon movies that do this. You know, just the exhilaration of flight. Um, there, well, even in in the the Star Girl show that I was mentioning earlier, she actually, the the Starman staff, she rides it almost like a witch's broom, and cool. and there are, there are some really cool sequences where she's just, um, you know, like like side saddle on this staff like flying through the sky and it's like wow that's really cool um you know it's it's just this is one of my all-time favorite like superhero action beats in a movie ever like it's just perfect and the way that it caps off with him getting into the truck with PV and PV's like, oh, I can't get the car to start. And he's like, I gotta worry about it. Just put it in neutral. And then he just fires the rocket pack and they like jet off in this 1930s truck. So cool. It's just, per- you know, perfectly executed. And then, uh, of course, you know, we get our ding, ding, ding moment as Bigelow names him the Rocketeer, right? Because they were going to call him, like, they had all kinds of goofy names. And, you know, Cliff gets to see see himself in the papers the next day. You know, he's smiling because nobody knows it was him. It's it's great. So really, most of the second act of the film is is just ratcheting up that Neville Sinclair wants the thing and that Cliff has it. But how can he get it from him? Of course, after the reveal, the FBI guys bring in their rocket pack 
and Hughes realizes immediately that, you know, it's actually just a vacuum cleaner. So the rocket pack is indeed still out there. And now things uh, get worse, right? Lothar is sent. He kills Bigelow. Uh, the FBI guys discover his, you know, body in, in similar pretzeled fashion. Um, and, and, you know, that they're... So we know that, you know, Neville is <clears throat> honing in, I suppose. But uh, then we get another, I, I guess this could count as an action beat. Uh, it's, it's not super exciting, but the FBI believes that uh, Cliff and PV are, you know, that they have the rocket pack. So they show up at their house with the intent of taking it from them. Lothar is there. They get into an altercation and PV's house just gets shot up. Right. That's I mean, so get, funny. They destroy that house. Mean, <laughs> my God, dude. I mean, it's just a hundred guys firing Tommy guns into a house. It's, <laughs> the porch collapses. It's, it's fantastic. so excessive. I, I, I don't know if this is some kind of statement about like police and FBI effectiveness in the 1930s or something, but who doggies yeah this is uh this is a bit excessive so fortunately everybody gets out okay but we come to find out very quickly that the rocket pack has been damaged and is now leaking fuel um you know they escape we get a little bit of jazz music as they're like sprinting through the corners and and now we're at the south seas club so Again, this was was set up earlier in the film that Jenny would love to go to the South uh, the South Seas Club, and we get this again immaculately designed nineteen thirties nightclub. Um, it's it's completely unrealistic, really. Like I don't think anything ever looked like this, even in old Hollywood. But it absolutely feels like something that could have existed in that space. And, and it definitely existed on TV. Yes. Yeah. I mean, in, in other, again, this isn't a movie that's necessarily trying to be realistic to the 1940s. It's trying to be realistic to film and television of the 1940s. This is what people think this time was like because we watch the movies from this time period. And this movie is trying to fit into that time period. And it's it's excellent as a result because that tone. I mean, that is that is a difficult thing to manage, right? You're not really you're showing the enhanced realism of Hollywood as if it were reality and expecting your audience to buy it. I guess it's also worth noticing and noting that uh, Jan from The Office, yes, is, hearty bowl of Jan, <laughs> is is singing a, a beautiful tune. Um, she does have a beautiful voice. I, I love Melora Hardin. She's she's gorgeous and yeah. A hearty bowl of jam. That's the only thing I can ever think of when I see her. <laughs> and uh, and she is the the you know musical entertainment at the South Seas Club. We get a couple of additional you know sort of nineteen thirties actor references. Um, w. C. Fields or an actor pretending to be W. C. Fields comes over and you know introduces himself is to Jenny. And, inappropriate and, with her. And then checks out her rack. Um, it's got to have a wire rack. Uh, but he, he you know, makes a, a, a double entendre joke. And again, at this point in the movie, I think they do a good job of balancing. We know Neville Sinclair is up to something, but we don't really know that he's 
he's bad just yet. You know, he's he's not good, but he's not evil. So we don't. I, I love that this scene starts, and we don't understand that there's a threat. Oh, there was a Clark Gable guy too, wasn't there? Yeah. So they're like, again, they're trying to place Neville Sinclair, this made-up character, in the world of actual actors of this time, and and they do so by connecting him to, you know, other you know famous people of that time period, which is, is again what Stevens was trying to do with the Rocketeer, with other pulp heroes of his day. You know, so Jenny looks stunning. She's got this beautiful white ball gown on. Neville's in his his tux. They're having a great time. And everything feels okay. Like, you know something's off, but you don't know that everything is terrible. Not yet. But we're, we're getting there. And then I have to ask, the waiter that comes over to, to tell Neville that uh, Richie wants to see him, is that Cliff Howard? Clint Howard? Or Clint Howard, yeah. Yes, yes it is. Okay, I thought so um, when I rewatched it this time. It, it, I mean, he's literally, that's all he does in the movie. Uh, so I was kind of surprised, but um, you know, Clint Howard is present. Obviously, Joe Johnson is, is good friends with Ron Howard. They've worked together before. Um, Johnson's made a, a couple of pictures for Imagine, I think. Um, but, you know, it, it's always nice to see Clint Howard and stuff. He shows up at the... Opportune times. But, you know, ultimately, Cliff and PV are on the run from the FBI, so they're hiding out at the diner. Jenny's at the South Seas Club with the bad guy, even though they don't know he's the bad guy just yet. The rocket pack's damaged. You know, everything's gone wrong. This is what you want in your second act. You want the, the conflicts to get clearer. You want the difficulties to get sharper. And, and things to sort of continue spiraling out of control for the heroes so that they are eventually forced you know, to step it up. And of course that happens when Eddie Valentine's guys uh, show up at the diner. Because now they know that Cliff Secord has the rocket pack and they're going to try and get it. So this scene's legitimately... It's it's pretty rough, right? Like PV gets held over the griddle for a little while. Like the the mobsters are treating everybody pretty badly. It's tense, and you know they're looking for Cliff. Uh, what is it, Cliff Secord? Right? Like he has that particular pronunciation of his name, and and eventually it's the connection with Jenny that reveals that you know Cliff is is the guy. And there's a nice little you know beat em up sequence as they get rid of the guys and then cliff you know puts on the rocket pack again he's got to go save jenny and then we get our you know i I guess you can't really have a movie set in this time period without some kind of dance number right like it just kind of has to be there i think it's kind of expected yeah, sort of again, you know, sort of like Temple of Doom. You know, you've got to have your 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 Willy dance number at the beginning. But we get that here. Neville takes Ginny out onto the floor before the music even starts and begins dancing with her. And it's this nice moment. And uh, you know, then everybody else comes in, and it's again, it feels like something that would have fit in a 1940s film of this era. So it makes sense. Uh, so Cliff arrives with the rocket pack and decides that he is is going to masquerade as a waiter. And I don't, 
I don't know. This is another sequence I think is is basically perfect. Uh, Cliff is in an ill-fitting waiter's outfit. He comes over. He completely interrupts everything. And, you know, Ginny's like, I, I love that she's like talking shit about him while he's standing there. <laughs> and, and Neville doesn't know who Cliff is. So, you know, he, he doesn't have a frame of reference. <clears throat> but he's just like spilling stuff and messing things up. And eventually he delivers a note that says, you know, hey, I need to talk to you. There's something wrong. And, you know, now we we spiral, you know, out of control. And, and he does a good job of at least... I like that Cliff is, is honest, right? He's not really trying to be cagey about things. He comes out pretty much immediately and says, I'm the Rocketeer. To which Jenny's like, what? what are you talking about? I haven't looked at the paper. I don't know the news, which is also funny. Because at this time period, you know, you wouldn't necessarily have access to, to you know the 24-hour news cycle kind of thing um i do love again i love the little details in this movie man the thing that lothar puts his hat on when he comes into the south seas club is the thing that jenny uses to knock him out when he's fighting with cliff <laughs> i didn't like, use that there's just it's little stuff this man everything like is that, set though. up everything is really well thought out at the very least this this script was you can tell that this was poured over and a lot of effort went in to setting those things up and then paying them off later and that's yeah. i just love that exactly it's it's all tied together right it's all the rug in the dude's room everything hangs together nothing is out of place if anything it's both an incredible strength and a kind of weakness of the movie because it's so stripped down. It has such a razor focus on everything that it's doing that, I mean, frankly, superhero movies of today have conditioned us to have an extra 30 minutes of fluff, right? Of just like seeing, you know, characters do goofy things. This movie has none of that. Everything is exactly what it has to do to accomplish the task in the moment. And it makes for like a really swift and enjoyable film, but it also leaves you kind of wanting a little bit more, right? There's room that there could have been more here. But all of this leads to, you know, another fantastic action sequence, probably, you know, probably the one that was hardest to execute if I have to, if, if I have to imagine, because I, this has the most like physical actor in the rocket suit flying around scenes of pretty much any of them uh and it's it's kind of just him on wires and he's you know flying around the room and he's you know, knocking over tables and blowing up champagne glasses and <coughs> all this different stuff but it's great he's he's flying around the south seas club he gets uh stuck in the laundry room where he had hidden the rocket and then he uses it to he uses the rocket to go up the laundry chute and and comes out in the women's it's women's, it's women's bathroom isn't it yeah. That he comes out in and then sort of flies through the door and, and then he's just in the, you know, the actual club itself. He rides an ice snail, which is, <laughs> <laughs> again, just, you know, period, you know, crazy accurate kind of thing. And, and everything just becomes chaos. Neville reveals his obvious allegiance to the... Uh, uh, to the mobsters that they're working together and he shoots down a, a 
a uh, net that kind of traps Cliff from the wall. And, you know, Ginny knocks out Lothar with the, uh, it's some kind of ceramic seahorse, but it's definitely the thing that he put his hat on when he came in. And Cliff escapes by, you know, breaking through the ceiling uh, in his rocket pack, which is great. It's super cool. Um, I, I do like that, you know, Cliff is, is constantly finding new ways to use the rocket pack and he's sort of realizing the capabilities of the rocket pack as, as he's going, right? It's very much a, it's, it's a, every, every scene's a learning experience, right? It's kind of like, in, in my opinion, one of the reasons why the Matrix films, uh, if they had made sequels, I don't think they did, but if they did, they probably would have made the mistake that they would make the action sequences meaningless and pointless instead of moments of growth for the main character as they learn to better understand themselves and their capabilities. Because in the first Matrix film, one of the things that's so satisfying about every fight sequence in that movie is that each one is part of Neo learning about all of his skills to lead to the the final fight. Exactly, right? It's not just a fight scene because we have to have a fight scene. It's a fight scene because our character needs to learn about all the things that they can do. And in the first action sequence, Cliff learns how to control the rocket, how to, you know, to fly, how to turn it off, how to turn it on, how to control thrust, like all of these very essential, like basics, here's how to manipulate the rocket. In this action sequence, he figures out how to maneuver in tight quarters. He figures out how... You know, hey, I don't have to be bound by the ceilings and walls. There's a window over there. I can just fly through it because I can do things other people can't. Which then leads us to the final action sequence when all of those things get combined and we see Cliff flying up to the top of a Zeppelin. We see him flying through the window of a Zeppelin. We see him, you know, doing all of this stuff because now he's learned, at least in some ways, the capabilities of what he can do. And that's what a good action sequence in a movie like this should be. And and I, I love that this film sort of, it, it keeps that going and it, it makes it a huge part of it. So Cliff Escapes, we get the best scene transition or a really best shot transition. The fade to the pillow, the that film. was so cool. It's so cool. <laughs> we fade from the, the arches of the Hollywood Hills to the folds in the pillow that Ginny is sleeping on in Neville Sinclair's apartment. And and it's it's perfect. It's it's basically the Steven Spielberg like fade from the Paramount logo to the mountain in Indiana Jones. Like it's straight up just that idea, that concept. But uh, we're we're pretty much into act 3 at this point, although I think we're we're a bit early. We're kind of transitioning into act 3. But ultimately, uh Neville is revealed as uber bad guy right he he kidnaps jenny and this is where if this was a bad movie jenny would sort of fall to neville's you know seductive ways all of his his beautiful lines and and she would be taken away and then she would be surprised as she was fumbling around to discover that he was the bad guy but what makes this a good movie is that Jenny sees right through his shtick, 
immediately. She's such a fan of his movies and of his work that as he starts delivering these lines to her meant to calm her and keep her quiet and, and oh, don't worry about it, she realizes that he's just repeating lines from his movies, right? That he doesn't actually mean anything that he's saying and that he is, in fact, still acting. And I, I kind of love it. It's great. Um, and Jennifer Connelly is, is great in the scene. She's really good in this movie in general. Like she's, she is, but in this scene in particular, I think she's just absolutely killing it because she's enthralled by what's happening, but yet also still playing that. I know what you're doing. Why are you doing this kind of angle at the same time? And and you can see Dalton. Like, I love that he just keeps ratcheting up. He keeps getting slightly more frustrated every time she she responds in that way. <clears throat> and, and you know, he, like I said, Dalton's having a great time in this role. I, I hope he enjoyed himself because it certainly looks like he's I really himself. like him in comedic roles. I don't know. Because, I mean, there is like a strong air of comedy to this villain. Oh yeah. No matter what. I mean, what. he's campy. He's I mean, you know, sorry for the spoilers, I guess, but you know, he eventually dies by flying a rocket pack while laughing maniacally <laughs> into the Hollywood yeah. sign. Engulfed and, and in flames. And in fl- you know, it's it's great. And he's like, ah, oh no. <laughs> it's you know, it's it's a funny death. And it's the same kind of side of him that you get from like hot fuzz which is another great yes. timothy dalton moment yeah in in retrospect i think his character in hot fuzz is most closely aligned with neville sinclair like he's <laughs> basically the same guy Dastardly. Uh, which I, I kind of love um but then you know i i just love these little moments because as jenny leaves to put on the uh the dress like you can see him checking himself out in the mirror and he's like you know, checking his teeth and stuff, just the, the pure vanity, the self-absorption. It's just handled really, really well. And this scene with just the two of them sort of bouncing back and forth is is great. Um, Ginny, I, I guess I guess her power move is just to hit guys over the head with pottery. It works. It does this, <laughs> it's surprisingly effective. Uh, she does the same thing to Neville Sinclair, knocks him out, and then she gets her sort of line of the film, which is, I got to play a scene with Neville Sinclair, right? <laughs> like We got to act against each other, finally. And so it's Ginny who actually makes the discovery of what Neville is. Because um, we know he's a bad guy, we know he wants the rocket, but she's the one who figures out that he is actually a Nazi spy. So as we mentioned before, this is sort of based on a bad biography about Errol Flynn, where a guy made a a suggestion that he was a Nazi without any kind of evidence to back it up, but it was still sort of absorbed into the cultural lexicon that Errol Flynn was a, you know, secret Nazi kind of thing. So that's what our our Neville is here. So Jenny finds the, the secret Nazi communications room, and, um, you know, Neville is, is revealed as you know, the real big bad guy. <clears throat> but of course, Cliff, returning back to the diner, gets the bad news that Jenny has been captured. Uh, but we are quickly escorted to the office of one Mr. Howard Hughes, right? Cliff's picked up. 
and and Howard and PV have been hanging out, which I love. Like, uh, I I love. I don't think it happens here, but like he's like, oh, the helmet. I wouldn't have even thought of putting a rudder on the helmet. And he's like, it's basic aviation, Howard. It's just, <laughs> it's just like this this old you know mechanic from a, a rundown airfield is like basic aviation hour south flying planes works uh you know it's it's just such a great such a great exchange again terry o'quinn is awesome and you know basically cliff says i, I need the rocket pack until i can rescue jenny and and here's where we get i mean it's it's basically normal at this point that movies are going to have some kind of like you know flashback footage to another movie but this has got to be one of the best like you know secret news reels ever it's just great because howard has collected the nazi attempts to create a rocket pack like his and I do want to point out that the Nazi jetpack guy in the, in the first sequence, the one that, you know, blows up and he dies, that is Dave Stevens. Uh, <laughs> that is his, his cameo. He is the Nazi pilot who blows up. Um, but, you know, he sees, you know, this, this footage and, and then they get this beautifully animated, like, Nazi rocket pack Superman sequence um i meant to look up who did the animation on this prior to watching but i, I didn't get a chance to but it's but got I, that I, great disney yeah. good. it's got that that disney animation quality to it um mm-hmm. but it's, it's it's scary i don't know it's it reminds me of a couple of other um war era animations that i've seen but it's it's really good yeah, I mean, somebody did their homework, like the 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 black and white coloring with the the gradation uh, was was very evocative of the time period. It feels a little bit Fleischery, right? Obviously, not as bombastic as like the Fleischer Superman stuff, right. but it certainly sort of feels of of an era with that. And and so the the plan is finally revealed, like why they've been trying so desperately to get the rocket pack back, which is because the Nazis want it so that they can copy it and they can use it to to take over the world right yeah at you know typical straight up bad guy nazi, nazi stuff <laughs> yeah i mean again there there's a reason why they kept saying this will be like indiana jones like it's it's like indiana jones right this is what nazis are going to take over the world everybody knows that's what they want to do they're going to use rocket packs to do it you can't let them And so here everything gets hashed out, right? It's it's probably the most straight-up exposition scene in the movie, uh, which it's shocking to me that we haven't had more of them. Um, you know, Cliff and Peavy have a couple of conversations about the rocket and sort of what it is and how it works, but it's been very quick. It's been very much like Peavy will say something and then Cliff's like, ah, I don't have time for that. Here we finally have to pause for just a moment and we have to just like, okay, tell us what's going on. Lay it out. And I love that the movie has basically waited until the out, basically the 90 minute mark before we get that scene. Everything else is just movement, right? Just go. Yeah. And it's awesome, right? It's 
it requires such faith in your audience to hope that they can keep up with it. I, one, it speaks to the simplicity of the story. Like the story is not complicated in this. Guy finds Rocket Pack. Rocket Pack gets him into trouble. Rocket Pack gets him out of trouble. Like that's that's all this is. So I, I can see why you would get away with it. But at the same time, I think if this movie was made today, we would have already had a scene with Howard Hughes sitting in a room with whoever, the FBI guys or some other researcher and being like, ah, the rocket pack. What are the Nazis going to do? You know, like we would have had that already. Right. But instead, we probably would have had some sort of scene with somebody being Hitler. (laughs) Sure. Exactly. And, And here we're 90 minutes in and we finally get, okay, here's everything you absolutely have to know. So that we can do the next 30 minutes of this movie and be done. And it's, again, this it's mechanical, it's functional, but it is perfectly acceptable, acceptable from a structural standpoint, and it works. You don't need to do anything else, and they don't. Yeah. And it's great. Because um, we know everything we need to know. We've got all the information. All of the pieces can click into place now, and we can just go and it's it's great uh you know the we already knew neville was a nazi we'd just been shown that but now all the characters are on you know in consensus and it it justifies cliff's next set of actions because he basically you know steals the rocket again and disappears you know i love that he gets one more shot on the fbi FBI agent (laughs) like i don't think he would have had to punch that guy but he just does (laughs) anyway because why not you punched him earlier in the movie Um, but a whole bunch of things happen here. So Cliff, you know, punches the the FBI agent, jumps out of the room, and then he grabs onto a model plane that is hanging in, in, you know, sort of Hughes' personal hangar here. And then he uses that to sort of escape out the door. And then it continues on, you know, the model continues on flying into the night. And of course, if you're a fan at all of aviation history, you know that that model is the Spruce Goose which was the all-wooden plane that Hughes spent a tremendous amount of money and time attempting to perfect and and basically could never get to work. But So they're suggesting here that the reason why he tried it was because Cliff showed him that it would fly by jumping out of his room here. Again, it's just a lovely little, little, eh, just a little, a little something for you. Just a little cool thing if you're aware of all that stuff little factoid just a little yeah you know you saw that simpsons episode with mr burns where he tried to have the plane right <laughs> this is what that is right? the tissue boxes on his feet <laughs> <laughs> and so you know i love alan arkin's face in that scene because he's just like so happy to see it fly i also want to point out that the gyrocopter that is about to save cliff secord and jenny's asses has been sitting in that hangar since the first shot of Howard Hughes in this movie, right? Again, set up and payoff. Yeah. You saw it. You know it's there. It's been there the whole time. I'm not surprising you with it. The GB that he eventually gets is sitting in the same hangar, right? All of that stuff is there, and I love it. And it's it's just so well thought out. It's so tight. Um, again, I, I can't say enough here. This is Johnson. This is Joe Johnson's second movie. This is the second movie he ever directed, right? Now, Honey, I Shrink the Kids was enormously successful. This was not successful. It was the opposite. Page Master, which was the movie he did after, was also not successful. 
Um, Jumanji, of course, blew up and that sort of kept his career going. But, you know, he had... I, I really feel like he put a lot into this movie. Like, a lot into this movie. Everybody did. And I cannot imagine making a movie that is this objectively good releasing it and seeing it fail i honestly don't know if i could have ever worked again like it that for me that would just been a soul crushing blow yeah and uh, it's one of those things that if i ever met joe johnson that would be the first thing i would ask him was like what did you do after rocketeer came out and didn't hit how did you survive didn't were you just like going to people's houses and knocking on their door and saying hi i'm joe johnson i directed a movie called the rocketeer it's really quite good please see it <laughs> right just like because that's what i would have done like i would have gone anywhere i would have you know i weirdly did flyers not remember posted this to movie. telephone poles you know i really i did not remember that this movie did as poorly as it as it did yeah no um because in my head when i saw it as a child in the theater, that's a good movie. Why doesn't everyone like that movie? And I just went on with the rest of my life thinking people did um, until I discovered when I was an adult that people didn't like The Rocketeer. Utter shock. I yeah. don't get it. I mean, you know, even if they did like it, they didn't go see it and they didn't, you know, there was no money. There wasn't enough money made to, to justify it. It debuted at like fourth the weekend it came out, which just blows my mind. Um, part of it might have been the marketing campaign because the marketing campaign was very Art Deco. I love the poster for this movie. Uh, it's yeah. great. I, I probably still have one somewhere. Um, but it was it was an incredibly designed Art Deco piece that didn't really actually look like the design of the Rocketeer in the film. I Almost all of the merchandise for the Rocketeer, which makes me think that the merchandise was set into motion before the movie was was even close to being finished. Um, in the comic books, the Rocketeer's jacket, the you know the cool like flight jacket with the fold over you know buttons section, um, is red, like bright red. And in the movie, it's it's a much more muted sort of leather brown, as you would expect a sort of you know bomber jacket, flight jacket to look. But all of the marketing. And all of the toys, which I've only got a couple of little like statue figures from this actual era of the Rocketeer, it was all red, all of it, which makes me think it was put into production before the movie was was really even close to being finished to know what the characters were going to look like, and, and so maybe there was a disconnect there of just not really knowing, you know, how to sell this to people. And again, Rocketeer was not a household name in terms of comic book characters, right? Nobody knew who it was. Like, you had to be pretty deep in the comic scene to even know who the Rocketeer was because there had only been like six or seven issues of it at that time interspersed over, you know, 10 years. But it it just, it would, it, as, a, as a person who, who likes to do creative things myself, to do something that is, that I know is great, and not have it hit, that would be so tough to deal with. I'm glad he kept going, obviously, but I don't know what I would have done in those circumstances. Um, but in any case, so Cliff escapes. He's able to get away. He inspires Howard Hughes to ruin his life and spend his fortune on a stupid project. But again, nice little piece of aviation history. And then everything comes to a head at another iconic... Los Angeles location, the Griffith Observatory. 
Um, so uh, Eddie Valentine is there with all of his goons. Neville Sinclair shows up with Jenny. Um, and, you know, this is the, the, the sort of final confrontation. Uh, Cliff is supposed to bring the rocket pack in exchange for Jenny. And, and, you know, Neville gets what he wants finally, which is exactly what happens, right? Cliff shows up, he's got the rocket. But, uh, in a, a nice little, <laughs> a nice little change of pace, the, the Nazis arrive, right? <laughs> they, they just show up, right? So the, we get the, the blimp, the, the hard airship, whatever it might be sort of passes over the Griffith Observatory, which again, set up in the newsreel, we know that these blimps are crisscrossing across the United States, so this is not a surprise. The The blimp shows up above the Griffith Observatory, and, you know, Neville reveals that there's just, like, hundreds of Nazi soldiers all over the place. Um, but by far the best component of this scene is... Eddie Valentine, right? So Paul Sorvino gets his moment here, and it's so good because the FBI actually shows up and does a good thing. They've been sort of, you know, screwing up the whole time, but this time they show up. Cliff takes off with the rocket pack, you know, off down a mountainside to escape. Paul Sorvino picks up a Tommy gun, starts killing Nazis, realizes that he's standing right next to the FBI that are trying to catch him. And God, what is his line? I'm trying to remember. I may not make an honest buck, but I'm I'm 100 American, right? I love like, it. it. It's such a good line, dude. I may not make an honest buck, but I'm 100 American. <laughs> I mean, it's everyone hates Nazis. Yeah, I, we can all come together in our hatred of Nazis. And it's just it's such a purely American line of thinking. <laughs> that I could be a complete criminal, like a terrible person, but yet I still care deeply about my country. And at least I'm um, not a Nazi. Yeah, I'm just I'm not a not a Nazi. And uh, so he he gets to take out the Nazis. Neville escapes with Jenny onto the airship, and and it sets up the the final you know action sequence of the film, and and possibly the and possibly the best. But it does give us the shot and and i think you know what the shot is it's straight out of one of steven's comics book uh, comic books and it is the rocketeer in full regalia on top of the griffith observatory next to the american flag getting ready to to jet up to the ship and it's i i love i love the shot I, I've drawn the shot. I have I have many versions of it where I've tried to capture this moment. Um, I remember. The, I remember all of them. <laughs> yeah, it's the the FBI guy sees him. They they put the spotlight on him, and then it's just you know the Rocketeer right next to the American flag. It's I mean it's probably like jingoistic and and ridiculous, but how many superhero movies have done? this shot right this one spider-man the original sam raimi ends with this shot of you know superhero and american flag that star girl show i just watched they go she goes and sits on top of the town's water tower which has a big flag on it and she's sitting right next to it right at the end of the show or the first season of the show anyway um 
you know, like this is this is the money shot, right? This is the money superhero shot now that we use to sort of cap the movie, and it's just beautiful. I, 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 I don't know. It's it's perfect. Like this this one, you know, sort of three second shot of the Rocketeer, you know, standing right there and then taking off. It's it's just great. It's excellent. And then, uh, you know, Paul Sorvino gets his go get him kid, right? Like, you know, kick those Nazis butts or what have you. Now, um, now to the Zeppelin battle. So I don't know what happened here. I have a feeling that cuts and, and various things might have led to this, but I've always, the only issue that I have with this sequence is. He takes off from the Griffith Observatory, he flies up to the ship, and then he immediately hits a rudder line and rips it. Seemingly by accident, right? Like, I know this, the movie has established that Cliff is a bit of a doof, right? That you know, he's not necessarily the most detail-oriented dude on the planet. But I've always taken issue, even when I was little, I was like, why did he do that? Did he not know that was there? Was he trying to grab onto it and just failed? Like, I I really the, want... Go ahead, sorry. Well, it felt like it might have been part of a sequence that didn't make it into the final cut. Yes, uh, because at this point in the movie, again, I know, again, as I said, Cliff's a bit of a doof, but... We've seen him grow and get better at being the Rocketeer throughout this entire movie. Now, this is his culminating moment. This is it. And then to have him basically run into the airship in such an obvious and and kind of stupid way just feels really out of place. I, I really wanted to see him... I wanted to see him do something more purposeful here right now. If he got the idea to mess with their navigation by ripping out their, you know, their rudder line, then cool do that. But in this, but the shot, it looks like it's an accident. Like he runs into it without meaning to, and then just sort of like lucks out. And it's, it's, it just kind of undercuts the character in a way that I don't like at this point in the film. Like I want to see Cliff being more successful than not. It works out and it's fine, but I I wanted to see more purposeful action there. And and it's just my it's like my only little niggling point. And, I'm and that's really you. tiny. What's that? And that's really tiny. I mean, that's not bad if you can get this far without Oh no. More. <laughs> no, no, it's it's it, believe me, it's not a deal breaker, but you know, I just I really wanted to see Cliff, you know, making more active decisions instead of just sort of being propelled along by you know, the various vagaries of of the situation. Cuz the same thing happens when he open he goes to open the hatch and he loses the gun. You know, it's just kind of like, well, whoops. <laughs> you know, he, he doesn't really have much to say about it. Um, but it does get better. But I'm kind of with you. I, I think it's probably part of a sequence of actions that um, that we lost, you know, or were cut. But that, that particular shot was done with the stop motion puppet. 
and I'm I'm going to go ahead and bet that the stop motion stuff was already finished and they probably didn't have the budget to shoot something else. That would be my guess. And so they they kept that instead of the um you know instead of perhaps what they wanted or would have wanted. Um but so Cliff he he flies up, he rips off the the rudder cable so they can't turn anymore, so they're kind of stuck. Uh he confronts Lothar, he does a cool move where he, you know, flies around the the airship and hits him from the other side, knocks him off. He slams into the um, he uh, slams into the the captain's cabin and blows out the window, knocks another guy out of the room, and then Neville starts like turning on all the other Nazis because they have to like drop weight or something because they're they're sinking and they can't get rid of it, and so Neville like starts shooting people to reduce the weight and uh you know we're, we're kind of into the final confrontation here so what had happened back when um the fbi were shooting up pv's house is that the rocket took a bullet hit and as a result has been leaking fuel and so pv had you know again set up and pay off piece of gum's not going to keep your butt in the air he uses a piece of cliff's gum to uh plug the hole in the rocket so it won't leak fuel because he's he's said if the fuel leaks down the outer casing it's going to ignite when it hits the flame and that's going to blow the whole thing so cliff is is kept alive by the gum he gets into a big fight with neville sinclair which is i generally like this because the fight choreography is not overdone it feels very, honestly, it feels a lot like an Indiana Jones fight sequence where, you know, it's kind of sloppy and and they're kind of, you know, it, it, it's not perfect. And it, it kind of works here because Cliff isn't a you know great hand-to-hand fighter and all of Neville's hand-to-hand fighting experience comes from the movies. So it's all basically, you know, useless. <clears throat> but he eventually sort of overpowers him, takes the rocket and Cliff pulls the gum off of the rocket so it starts leaking again. So, you know, as Neville takes off, he believes he's won. You know, it's just Timothy Dalton at his smarmiest level of smarm that's possible. And as he flies away, laughing maniacally, the rocket pack explodes. And he, in a giant (laughs) ball of flame hits the Hollywood land sign. So again, Perfect. you know, most most people know this, but at one time it didn't say Hollywood, it said Hollywood land. And then I forget what actually happened, uh, storm or something. Because <laughs> at this point it it's been parodied so much in movies we've forgotten yeah. what actually happened. Yeah, there have been dozens of explanations in movies for how the, the land part of Hollywood, the Hollywood land sign got uh, blown off. But in this one, it's Neville Sinclair and the rocket pack blowing it up. So then uh, Cliff and Jenny go to the top of the ship, and, and it's going down. There's not much they can do about it. Lothar shows back up and, um, you know, is, is being threatening. And then, again, fantastic little action sequence. The, the ship is exploding. I don't think it would be quite that controlled of an explosion at the end of the day. I, I really think it would be more of a total explosion, a Hindenburg-style explosion. But in this one, it just kind of explodes in each little sequence. Uh, I guess if they were, if all the gases were contained in little pockets, that would be it. But 
it doesn't really matter. Uh, it's a great, great moment because it's blowing up in sequence. Lothar gets stuck on his uh, harness that he put on. <clears throat> and then who shows up to rescue Cliff and Jenny but Peavy and Howard Hughes with a gyrocopter Yay. and a rope ladder. And they get, they, they get, you know, masterfully, you know, flown out. And, oh, it's just triumphant, dude. Again, Howard's score is just doing work through the whole movie, but absolutely here. It's just that constant, awesome, you know, action beat stuff that he was always so good at. And, uh, and then the last shot of the sequence is the burning Nazi flag, you know? And it's like, oh, I, I miss the time when burning a Nazi flag to triumphant music was the was a good thing to do. I, I you didn't have that, to worry that we were know? offending someone's Trump leanings. <laughs> sorry. sorry. No, I'm I not know, sorry. Right? I'm not sorry. If you're a Nazi, it's you like, suck. <laughs> I wish that we could just, you know, burn our Nazi flags in public these days, but um but it's it's great. I mean, again, there's there's very There are very few things I enjoy seeing in a movie more than than a bunch of Nazis getting their asses kicked. And by God, yeah. they get their asses kicked so hard in Rocketeer. It's fantastic. Um, so we cut to the aftermath. It's been a few days and, you know, life has seemingly returned to some kind of normal. But of course, Howard Hughes, because he's a billionaire <laughs> and because he's Terry O'Quinn and he's awesome, he shows up. And it just drops a plane right into Cliff Secord's hands. And it's a, a near perfect recreation of the GB that was destroyed, uh, but with a little bit of Hughes Aviation mustard on it, right? It's got a little bit of that mm, Hughes Aviation goodness. And then we get this, this great end conversation, right? Where Hughes, as an aviator himself, just asked like what did it feel like to wear right what was it you know can you give me any idea of, of how great it was and he's like you know what does he say he's like it it might have been the greatest thing that ever happened to me and then he looks at jenny uh, like, uh, uh closest maybe, i can get to heaven closest i can get to heaven that's right well maybe all right and then he looks at jenny uh then howard hughes tosses him a pack of gum and sends him on his way. All right, it's it's perfect, perfect ending, right? Yeah. All of Cliff's dreams, even though he lost the rocket, all of Cliff's dreams can still come true. Um, absolutely great. So everybody comes out to look, um, and then we get our sequel bait because they were hoping that there would be sequels. I was hoping there would be sequels. America was hoping that there would be sequels. But we find out that Jenny stole back the plans to the rocket pack, right? So we don't have the rocket pack, but we have the plans to the rocket pack. And PV, because he's you know basic aviation, Howard, you know, he can can put this together. And so as Jenny and Cliff kiss and celebrate the moment, PV's up <laughs> and he's talking about like weight to fuel ratios and, and, you know, he's just, 
he's just trying to find somebody to talk to about his ideas for how to make the rocket pack even better. And it's that and I perfect do, I do hopeful love ending. That, right? What was that? It's that perfect hopeful ending. Yes, you know, it's it's sweeping, it's grand. Uh, even if it's if it's not actually, it feels sweeping and grand, right? Everybody comes out to congratulate Cliff. The you know the endless possibilities of the future are you know right there in front of them, and it's 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 perfect. Like I I don't know if I can use any other word. It's a perfect film. Uh, one of of maybe ten that I'm aware of that has next to no flaws. It's structured beautifully. It's executed flawlessly. It's gorgeous to look at. It's beautiful to listen to. It's great. It's just unironically, no hyperbole. It's great. I don't understand and, why it wasn't more popular. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I, I guess we can just go ahead and slide right into that because as the, the film comes to a close, uh, I think even... <sighs> I think modern audiences would have issues with this movie because by our standards now for superhero for a superhero film, right? And that's the issue. Is this is a superhero film straight up. It's a superhero film that is following the very specific structure of a superhero origin story, right? I mean like we get all of those basic beats, but pre-Batman begins, right? Pre-Blade, right? We in many ways, this sort of set into motion what, what I would now consider like the standard superhero origin story. And this established that structure by using classic screenwriting structural techniques, right? Because these are the pieces that you need to tell the origins of a person who's you know stepping out of their comfort zone. But I think by modern standards, it's slow. I don't find it slow. I find it exhilarating. But I think you put this in front of a 12 year old. I don't know. I really don't. And, and as, as much as it pains me to say that, I don't know if it would be enough. I don't know if it would be Safeway fried chicken. Good. Let me put it that way for mm. that 12 year old that it may not meet the Safeway fried chicken standard that uh, David indicated in his review of the film. But what might have pushed it over the edge, right? So the, the one thing question, and this has been, of all of our one things, this has been the absolutely hardest one for me to do because I, I really, in my head, this movie has little to no flaws. And, and so figuring out a thing that would make it work better has been remarkably difficult. Um, I had one, only one thing has stood out okay, to me, so I'm, and I'm I don't. Let you go first, yeah. I don't feel like this would improve the movie for me, but I feel like people would like it, and I think it was missing, and that is a nice montagey scene when he first gets the jetpack. This sure. movie is so quick <clears throat> that he gets it, and then everything else is set into motion. That we don't really have any time. For him to do that, you because know, you know what I'm thinking. It's like Iron Man testing the suit, mm -hmm. um, Spider-Man testing his web slinging. We don't yep. really get that scene. And I no, he kinda... goes from he goes from the getting the jetpack, figuring out how it works, to rescuing Malcolm. 
I kind of wonder if it wouldn't have been good to pad things out a little bit and maybe build up that origin story feel a little bit more um, so that we really have audiences invested in the idea that this is an origin story because we don't know that. And for people who aren't familiar with the Rocketeer comic book, they wouldn't know that. And yep. it wouldn't, it's not like a Superman movie where it's, oh, we're going to learn about Superman's origin, which we know he has one. It's not like the X-Men where we learn about their background. It's not like Iron Man where we see his. Even though we're getting it, we just don't have any of those modern signals that we've come to expect. And I kind of think the movie could do better with that. And maybe I, it would yeah. pre would have prepared people to go on this journey and be a little more willing to sit through some of the slower parts of the film, I guess. Yeah. I mean, this movie is swift. It's 105 minutes, which is, even in 1991, that's short. Uh, especially for an, a, a fairly large budget action film. Um, so the one thing that I had come to, and it's a very vague and sort of generalized one, is just more time. Yeah. Like, really, I think one more action sequence might have been enough to break it up. Uh, again, you know, it was sort of along the lines of your, your montage, like seeing him experimenting more with the rocket. You know, even if you wanted to let his first, exp I think his first reason to put the rocket on and try to fly it to rescue Malcolm is fine. But, but it would have been cool if we had drawn things out a little bit after that. Exactly. Like, instead of just immediately then, you know, they get attacked by the FBI and, and you know, now they're on the run and all that stuff. You know, what about a couple of days of them, you know, hanging out at the, at the airfield and experimenting and trying stuff and figuring out maneuvers and, you know, whatever. You know, I think something like that might have been... A really good thing to sort of not only pad the runtime a little bit, get it a little bit beefed up, but also more time between Cliff and Peavy. Um, you know, more people maybe discovering what's going on and them having to be secretive about it. Like there, there have been some more opportunities there. I don't think the film suffers from a lack of characterization. I mean, I think of of all of the characters, you know, Cliff is probably the least drawn um, in terms of you know we don't know anything about his his backstory would not that we necessarily have to, but we don't get any information about that. And then we really just have this vague picture of an ambitious pilot with hopes and dreams, desires to be successful. Right. So we could have spent some more time sort of building up cliff and where he came from and who he was and, and, you know, sort of what shaped him. And, and I think a little bit of that might've been good just to sort of you know build out his character. But, but apart from that, you know, I don't know what could have been done to craft this more finely into something that's really marketable to a lot of people. Because this already feels like it was honed and crafted to appeal to the maximum number of people possible. Like, it feels like that that process already took place and we got the result of it. And... You know, so rather, you know, other than just sort of blowing that apart and adding a bunch of different stuff in or trying to, to pad this out with more information, I don't know what else you could do. I mean, the only other potential option would be maybe to um, turn it more adult, take it back to the more, more adult approach, right? A little bit more Indiana Jones than the Temple of Doom than... I could see that. You know, that might work. Um, 
especially for this time period where your action movies were not necessarily family friendly action movies, right? They were much more, you know, hard edged. Uh, it might have been able to find some purchase there, but you know, I like it as it is because you know I can share it with my family and and we can all enjoy it together. You know, rather than having to be like, oh, wait till the kids are older, kind of thing. So I, I'm okay with it, but that might have done something to encourage people to go out and see it. I don't know. All right, well, I guess let's uh, let's recommend. Um, I, I'll go ahead and, and jump in here. Uh, this is a 100 for me. Uh, this is an absolute classic. Despite the fact that it was a failure when it came out, it, it has certainly changed the, the the culture around the film has changed. It is a, a film that I think now has a tremendous following and a, a great appreciation, but maybe not enough uh, because I think everybody needs to see this movie if you haven't. Uh, it's it's really something special. Uh, Johnston crafted and honed and refined this film despite its many problems and its long, long development hell process to get it on screen. Uh, I think he made something here that because of the choices made in its setting and how they approached that setting, it's timeless. This is a timeless film. You will be able to watch it forever. And to see somebody that didn't get it right, just go watch The Phantom. No, oh, God. How go watch you. that because The Phantom tried to do this again a How couple years later. Dare you? With bring the that same up. kind of pulpy <laughs> character. So did The Shadow. Ugh. Forget about The Shadow. They tried to do it too oh. and they freaking boffed it. Right? I don't hate The Phantom. I don't I, hate it. I mean, um, I don't hate it in that. But the shadow is it's not a good movie, unwatchable, yeah. and they were trying to grab the same kind of feeling. And uh, Rocketeer did it; they didn't. Uh, slam evil. That's what I say. Uh, so yeah, hundred percent for me. Absolutely, hunt this movie down and watch it. You will be happy that you did. Um, and this is also a one hundred for me because. I don't know. It just in my head, this was a blockbuster. In my head, I was like, the, of course, like that's it. a great movie. Everyone loves that movie. I was shocked and appalled to find out that not everyone loves this movie. In fact, a lot of people didn't even see this movie. <laughs> um, yeah. It only so, had 58,000 user reviews on Rotten Tomatoes as well, which is quite low. That is really low. I kind of hope that it finds a second life somehow. Um, I certainly don't want them to remake it. It's one of those films that I'm I'm almost glad that it didn't do well because it means there weren't 4,000 sequels and sure. a TV spinoff and just all kinds of terrible things that ruined it. Uh, but I also hope that it's out of reach from future remakes. But I, def- I think everybody should see this film, especially if you care at all about the Marvel Cinematic Universe and how that has played out. You should absolutely see this movie because it's from a director who helped establish what the Marvel Cinematic Universe is. And obviously a lot of the ideas that he used to establish that were born in this film. Mm -hmm. Um, So I love it. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. Watching it again recently, it it just holds up tremendously well. Like I said, because it's divorced from the time in which it was made, and is so heartily invested in this much more classic period. It's 
it it basically just skipped all of the you know sort of the bad 90s movie connotations and it just feels like a movie from 1938 right like you could put this up with other films of that time period and it just hangs with them right like if there was some cataclysm and we lost the record of film and somebody found this movie and didn't know when it was made they would be more likely to place it back then than when it was actually made yeah and and that to me is is an incredible accomplishment and and the movie just nails it and again there are people who tried to do the same thing a couple of years after this with characters that the rocketeer was attempting to connect with like the shadow like you know the phantom and they just completely drop the ball like they're nowhere near the quality of this for a variety of reasons treat williams is in the phantom so i mean there's that i guess treat williams how you want to be treat williams <laughs> um he's the substitute anyway uh so yeah it just it's it's a great great film so um well i guess uh dear listener uh we can't praise this film anymore uh but it is a true true failure piece it may have failed back then but it is absolutely something that you should spend time on now it is most definitely not a piece of something else and that's what we do here we figure out if a movie is a failure piece or a piece of something else but the 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 rocketeer is most definitely a failure piece it is a beautiful film that's deserving of all your time and attention so if you have disney plus throw it in the queue check it out you'll more than likely be glad that you did uh, all right, so let's wrap this thing up. Um, where can you be found on social media, Catherine? I can be found on Twitter at Baskinator. And I can be found on Twitter at T Baskin. Or you can get us at F Peace Theater. And if you need to get in contact, give us a, a, drop us a line in the old email department, you can send it along to failurepeace at gmail.com. Well, thanks once again for listening. We will be back next week with another film discussion of a cinematic near miss, and we will be happy to see you then.